thank you for coming. And uh, hopefully everything will work and we'll have a good time. Um, I wanted to uh, say, start off with a few sort of personal notes, give you kind of a little bit of a roadmap of what we're going to cover today, and then sort of dive in. Uh, this is going to be a bird's eye view, as Stovall said, of the supernatural worldview of Scripture. Um, we're going to cover a lot of concepts today that are going to be on the surface familiar. You know, here's sort of a little mini grocery list. You've heard a lot of these terms before, family, identity, mission, destiny, supernatural rebellion, family, those sorts of things. But I wanted to say up front that while a lot of the terminology is going to be familiar, I can guarantee that you're going to hear things today that are going to be quite new. And they might even be a little disturbing. <laughs> uh, just a little bit of my personal story. If you've read uh, Unseen Realm or if you follow my podcast, my podcast is the Naked Bible Podcast. And we call it Naked Bible because we're just trying to teach Scripture with, you know, creedal formulations sort of stripped away, denominational distinctives and preferences stripped away. What I care about is that you're able to read Scripture in light of its original context, the context of the writers and their original readers. They come from quite a different world, and they think in ways that we as moderns are not used to thinking. And for my own story, uh, I was, I sort of had my watershed event, if you've read Unseen Realm, I relate this in the very beginning of the book, where I was a graduate student, doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin, and by that point I had taught for five years at a Bible college, I had two master's degrees, I was not a newbie uh, to biblical stuff. But one Sunday morning I was sitting in church, and a friend of mine who was also in the Hebrew and Semitics department was, was there. And you know, you know how it is. You have a few minutes to kill uh, before the service starts. And I don't remember what we talked about, but I'll never forget the way it ended. And he had his Hebrew Bible with him there, and he said, you need to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew. And I did. And what I saw there was life-changing. I'm going to show it to you uh, today. But I, the first thing that sort of popped into my head was, how in the world could I be a doctoral student and have taught five years, you know, 15, 20 different classes, and have never seen what I saw in the text that morning? And it, it just changed the way I, I viewed everything. And that sort of became, uh, you know, just a, a fire, I couldn't put it aside, and it led to essentially my dissertation, it led to the book we know as Unseen Realm, it led to the book we know as Supernatural, it led to essentially what I do. And in that process, there were some uncomfortable moments because I had to make a decision to value what the text said more than what my tradition said. And that was difficult. I knew if I did it, 
I was going to lose some friends. I knew if I did it, I would never be invited to speak at this or that place. And, you know, it was just one of those watershed things. If we believe this thing we call the Bible is inspired, and we believe things like God decided, these are God's decisions, God decided to prompt individuals to produce this thing we call the Bible at a certain time, in a certain culture, in a certain place, with a certain worldview that is not ours, then we really ought to not impose our own worldview on the text. Okay? It, it's a simple idea. We, we should try to read them the way they wanted to be understood, what was going through their heads, because they're not writing from the perspective of a 21st century white guy. Okay? They're just not. They're not asking the questions or addressing the questions that I have in my culture in my time period. They're doing something different. Now, it all applies to us. But we have to realize the Bible, while it was written for us, it was not written to us. It was written to somebody else. And if we rightly understand that, then we will know that we're applying things correctly and we will be able to understand more of Scripture. I kind of specialize and focus on the weird stuff in the Bible. Okay? I have this little, I used to say this as a professor and it sort of caught on. If it's weird, it's important. Okay? And it, and it really is because there's nothing thrown away. It's not like the biblical writer is going about his business and saying, hey, I need something weird here. I got a few paragraphs to fill. <laughs> so, you know, this is part of the assignment, so I got to throw this in here. No, it's weird to us. But people living two or 3,000 years ago with an entirely different worldview would have known exactly what to do with that. They would have known why it's there, what it means, what role it plays in the bigger picture. We lose an awful lot when it comes to that. And because we do, we won't find some of the ideas that we'll talk about today in the creeds. We won't find them in our doctrinal statements. We'll just find them in the text, <laughs> okay? I mean, that, that, that's where we find them, in the biblical text. And what I want to do, uh, you know, I just want to, you know, sort of prep you a little bit. Mike, you're not going to hear Mike say, well, you thought the gospel was A, and Mike says it's B. No. The things that you believe, you know, I believe. I'm a normal, you know, evangelical guy. I know what the gospel is. I accept it. Christ is Lord. It's an exclusive claim. There is no other way of salvation. I'm a normal Trinitarian dude. Okay, all the boring things you can, you know, okay, I'm that too. But the reason why I think those ideas are coherent and arise from the text might be dramatically different than you've heard. Some of your favorite arguments for things, I might say, that's just a terrible argument. Okay? So I'm prepping you. I'm used to people looking at me like I've got two heads, so that won't bother me. I'm used to this kind of look. Okay? But I will take that over this. Okay? 
So now you know where I'm coming from. Okay, so let's jump in. You're not going to hurt me. <laughs> I'm not going to hurt you either, so. Let's start with Psalm 82. This was my watershed event. If you have a Bible, you can turn there if you like. I'm going to show you the text. I like people to see the text rather than what I say about it. And don't stress out, by the way, you know, if, don't feel like you've got to write down every word. I'm going to give the slides to Stovall. He'll put them up somewhere and you'll all get them. You can throw them on YouTube or whatever. You know, I, I'm on YouTube about, you know, 100,000 times and don't know how I got there. So it, it's okay. You'll get, you'll get the notes. But this was the passage that my friend on that morning in church said, you need to read this in Hebrew. Okay, it's in English, but I'll show you the relevant parts here. Let's just open up our little, if I can find my mouse here. Open up our little Hebrew section. The Hebrew line for verse 1 says, Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. God has taken his place in the divine council. If I click on God, I don't know if it'll show up. No. But you'll see in the blue column, you can at least see the blue column, we have the word Elohim. This is a word you've probably heard before. It's a standard word for God, okay? Real easy. Well, it's not so easy when you go down to the second part of the verse. Bekerav Elohim Yishpot. In the midst of the gods, you'll see it's the same word, Elohim. He passes judgment. So when I read that on that Sunday morning in Wisconsin, I knew enough Hebrew grammar to know that the first Elohim was capital G because Nitzav is a singular participle. Sorry for the grammar spasm, but that's why you know. But Bekerav Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of, you can't be in the midst of one. You're in the midst of a group, and the group is referred to as Elohim, gods, plural. Now my first thought was, okay, that looks like a pantheon. That looks like something we'd read about in Greek and Roman mythology. Unfortunately, I had a later thought. <laughs> and that was, I'll bet Jesus knew that verse. I'll bet the apostles knew that verse. I'll bet the New Testament writers knew that verse. And somehow, it didn't deter them or deny a theology of one unique God and a trinity and a heavenly... I mean, so how do, how do we articulate what we believe about God as a trinity, God and the Godhead, and handle this verse? Because we don't want the trinity to be these gods here. Because if you keep reading the psalm... Just turn it off. You keep reading the psalm. Look at what God says to the other gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then he says in verse 6, 
I said, you are gods. Let me just creep that up a little bit. And you'll notice it's the same word again. I said, you are Elohim, all of you, sons, plural, of the Most High. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. That's not the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity's not corrupt. The Trinity doesn't need a verbal spanking from God. Okay, and they're not sentenced to death. So we have in this passage, verse 1, we have God speaking to a group of gods. Now, if you went, if you do what I did at the time, I said, um, well, you know, I'm going to go look at commentaries. You know, surely, surely some of my, you know, favorite scholars, you know, have addressed this question. And what you get is you get the idea in verse 1 that the gods in this council are people. They're Jewish elders. They're members of the Sanhedrin. They're Israelites. I know that sounds a little odd, but trust me. I mean, if you, I, I could open up commentary after commentary after commentary, and that is what you'll read. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, in fact, verse 6, in one of his debates with the... Jewish leadership, to defend his assertion that I and the Father are one. He isn't saying, look, quit, throw, you know, quit being mad at me because we're all just gods. Okay, we're, you're just like me and I'm just like you. It's not what Jesus was saying. He never said, you're just like me. Okay. But this is the common view. I ran into this everywhere, which was troubling because I knew that that just didn't work. If you go over to Psalm 89, let's just click on that. Psalm 89, and you go down, we'll start here in verse five. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. There's another reference to that council idea. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Now, heavenly beings here, and ESV nicely gives us a footnote. In the Hebrew, it says, sons of God, okay? Sons of might is not a good translation of b'nai elim, sons of God. It's literally what it is. Here, this council of the sons of God, remember back in Psalm 82? God speaking to the Elohim, the gods, and then in verse 6 he says he calls them sons of the Most High. Well, we know who the Most High is. That would be the God of the Bible. So these Elohim in Psalm 82 are sons of God, also called gods. Here we have sons of God in a council in the skies, in the heavens. Now, the last time I checked my Bible, we don't have a bunch of Jewish guys ruling in the skies. Okay, it just doesn't make any sense. But that is what you will run into time after time after time after time. So when I'm confronted with this, you know, I, I'm having a bit of a quandary. You know, and it, it's, again, it, this, I, I, didn't, I didn't run into this in Sunday school. I went to Bible college. I never ran into this. I taught Bible college and Christian college. And even then, in class prep, I never ran into this. And here it was, hitting me right between the eyes. And 
I couldn't just pretend that it wasn't there. I couldn't let it go. But I, again, I had confidence that this is the word of God. I'll bet Jesus knew this. I'll bet Paul knew it. I'll bet the apostles knew it. I'll bet the New Testament writers knew it. There must be a way to make this comprehensible. And what I had to do was I had to set aside the worldview that I had. I had to set aside what I had been taught in my tradition and just say, let's go with the text. At the end of the day, it's probably still going to be standing. I'm not going to hurt it. I'm not going to harm it. If it's the word of God, it's not going to harm me. So let's noodle this. And again, this became you know, the thing that you know, drove me really through you know, almost 10 years of graduate school, coming to grips with this as an academic. And again, as an academic, my field is just, right, my specialty is this kind of stuff. So let's look at a couple other passages. I mean, if you, if you drill down into this, you're going to run into other things that are kind of interesting. This is 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 19. Now, if you know a little bit about your Old Testament history, after Solomon passes off, you know, away, the kingdom splits. So you have the 12 tribes, they split into two kingdoms, 10 in the north, two in the south. The north is called Israel or Samaria. The south is called Judah. And you've got prophets running around in both kingdoms basically saying, we shouldn't be split up, okay? Because down there in Judah is where Jerusalem is. This is where we worship Yahweh. We should be 12 tribes worshiping one God. But in the north, they're off doing their own thing. They, they create an alternative worship center or centers, and they slide into idolatry pretty quickly. Now, in this scene, the king of the north is Ahab, again, who's probably the worst guy, maybe next to Manasseh, in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he talks to the king of the south, the southern kingdom, who's Jehoshaphat, and he wants Jehoshaphat to partner with him in an alliance to go destroy a city. So Jehoshaphat goes up there, okay, I'll meet with Ahab, you know, why not? It's, it's kind of like South Korea and North Korea, you know. Let's just go up there and talk. And so he goes up there and Ahab brings out all the prophets of Baal and they do whatever prophets of Baal do. And they say, Ahab, you're the man, go up and conquer remote Gilead, you're, you're just awesome, you're gonna win. And Jehoshaphat's a little suspicious and he says, isn't there like a prophet of Yahweh around here that we could ask him? <laughs> and, and Jehoshaphat says, it's, it's not, it's, it's in the verses prior to this, it's one of my favorite lines. Ahab says, this is my paraphrase, yeah, we got one of those here, and I hate that guy. <laughs> because he's, he's in prison, he goes, because he never prophesies anything good. <laughs> So that's verse 18. He's only prophesies evil, you know, to me. And so they bring Micaiah out at Jehoshaphat's insistence. And at first he kind of mocks the whole thing. He's like, oh, you know, yeah, go up there. You're going to win. You're great. You're Ahab. You know, he, like he's miming, you know, what Ahab's prophets told him. And Ahab gets a little ticked, like, come on, you know, give it to us straight. And so Micaiah says in verse 19, you want to know what I see? Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of Yahweh. By the way, in your English Bibles, when you have all small caps, that is the English convention for the divine name, Yahweh. 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at remote Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. So the, the members of the heavenly host, who are, again, it's a council, God opens up, you know, you, you, if, you read, if you read the whole chapter, God has decreed that it's time for Ahab to die. He's finally going to be judged for his wickedness. And then the events ensue and we get to this scene. So God opens it up, not because he needs information. God's like, yeah, I want to get rid of him, but I can't figure out, you know. Like, <laughs> no, he, he lets them partner with him to decide how Ahab is going to be judged. And they have a little debate. One said one thing, another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord. So we know that the members of the heavenly host are spirits. They're not Jewish guys in the skies, okay? <laughs> a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you know, God comes back, you are to entice him and you shall succeed, go and do so. And Micaiah says, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophets and the Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, God is omniscient. So if the spirit comes forward and says, oh, oh, call on me, you know, I got an idea. If it would have been a dumb idea, God would have said, oh, just go sit down, we'll call on you later, okay? He knows what's going to work and what isn't. But the point is, he has a counsel and he lets them partner with him in making certain decisions. You get the same thing in Daniel 7. We're not going to go through all these. We'll hit a couple more in a few minutes. But Daniel 7, this is the, the vision of the four beasts, which are four empires. And you get down to this scene in verse 9. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones, plural, that's a plural, has an S on it, thrones, plural, were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Again, we know who the Ancient of Days is. It's not a brain teaser. This is God. God is seated. The other thrones, you know, nobody's sitting in there yet. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. By the way, where have you seen that description before? That's Ezekiel 1. It's the same you know, divine chariot throne description. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court, the council, council sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Heavenly books, by the way, are an interesting topic. We did a whole episode on my podcast on that. It's part of the job of the heavenly host to keep track of everything that happens, not because God needs information or God has a bad memory. It's, it's a metaphor designed to tell us that God doesn't miss anything. But look who participates in the proceedings. It's a heavenly council. So, I mean, you run into these things that are very easy to sort of read over. It, the, heaven, the, the supernatural realm has organization. It's not a chaotic mess. It's not a Keystone Cops scene. 
It has order and coherence. And the biblical writers, who are not privy to that world, it's the supernatural world, to describe its order and its coherence, they use a metaphor that they're familiar with, the language of the royal court. God is king. He has a council. He has an administration. The administration has certain tiered levels. You run into this in scripture if you read your Bible closely. Now, going back to the matter of the plurality, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna unpack this for you. It's not really that big of a conundrum, even though at the time it was, again, it was a conundrum for me and it was disturbing. But what I'm suggesting to you is that your Bible presumes, the biblical writers presume and the biblical text says that the gods are real. They are real spirit beings. Some of them are loyal to Yahweh, spirit beings loyal to Yahweh. You know, we tend to think of them as angels, and I'll, I'll comment on that terminology a little bit later. But they're real. Some of them are loyal, and some of them are in rebellion, and they are hostile to God and his people. This is, pardon the pun, this is the genesis of spiritual warfare in Scripture. It has a very long history. And when the Bible says in verses like these, my list here, that Yahweh is the God of all gods, the text means exactly what it says. It doesn't mean God is the God of these things that don't really exist. Why not just say God is the God of the Avengers or the DC Universe or SpongeBob, you know, Bikini Bottom, okay? because those are all fictional characters. It gives no glory to God to say he's better than a fictional character. Okay, I'm better than that. And every one of you are. So when it says Yahweh is the God of all gods, it means exactly what it says. Now why does this trouble us? Well, it's kind of obvious why this troubles us, because we as Westerners, as modern Westerners, and again, I'm, I'm in there, we are trained by both our Western culture and our Christian traditions to believe that the word G-O-D, when we see it on a piece of paper, when we see it on a screen, when we see the letters G. O and D, that those letters signify, and I catch this, this phrasing is important. We, we are trained to think that the letters G, O, and D signify a specific set of unique attributes. That things like omniscience, omnipresence, sovereignty, creatorship, those are all packed into the letters G, O, and D. So that when you put them together, it refers to a unique set of attributes. That's why it creeps us out when you put an S on the end. Because we have been trained to think a certain way about a certain word. Now, the biblical writers did not think that way about the word Elohim. How do we know, Mike? Are we just supposed to say, oh, that's nice, Dr. Heiser, you have a PhD, so I'll believe that. No. You get it by doing boring things, like looking up the, the 2,000 plus occurrences of Elohim and reading them all. Yeah, it's, a, it's a recipe for curing insomnia, all right? 
So if you actually do that, you will run across the fact that the biblical writers use Elohim of four or five different things, just, you know, we'll use round numbers, say roughly half a dozen things that are not the God of the Bible. Now, that alone should tell you that the biblical writers, when they wrote out Elohim, they are not thinking of a unique set of attributes. Because if they were, they would never use the term of something else. They don't think about Elohim the way we are trained to think about G, O, and D. That's the disconnect. That's the problem. It's a problem in academia, and it's a problem just you know, in, general, in general interest in biblical studies, anybody who's interested. We're just trained to think that way. If you, I mean, we could go through different passages and just give you a few references. We have the God of Israel, Psalm 82.1. He's definitely Elohim. We have the council members who are not him because he's judging them for being corrupt. They're Elohim. The gods of the nations. If we looked up 1 Kings 11.33, we'd have, you know, Kamosh of Moab. We'd have Asherah, Ashtaroth. You know, the, these deity figures, they're also called Elohim. They're not at the level of the God of Israel for the biblical writer. He's not, they're not thinking attributes when they write the word Elohim. The Shadim, Deuteronomy 32, 17. If we could click out to this. Now, in your English Bibles, this typically gets translated. It's over here in the NLT. Let me enlarge this just a bit so you can read it. They offered sacrifices, it's a reference to the Israelites, to demons. This is the word shadim. These are not the demons of the Gospels. By the way, we're, we're going to get into this later today. We're used to thinking of good guys, angels, bad guys, demons. That is really, really oversimplistic. Okay, there are different groups of bad guys. They are not all the same, and they don't, they don't derive from the same source or event either. But in this case, the Shadim, which are, it's a term, it's an Akkadian term that refers to a territorial entity. They are referred to as gods. They offered sacrifices to the Shadim, which are not God, no kidding, to gods they had not known. If we click on the word gods, Again, you'll see that we have Elohim. So here we have, again, clearly lesser beings referred to by Elohim. 1 Samuel 28, 13, I'll just you know, run through this one without clicking out. This is the account of Saul going to the medium, it's often translated witch, at Endor to get information. Uh, the medium at Endor. So Saul shows up at her house. He, he has previously run out all the mediums and the necromancers and all, you know, all the occult, you know, figures, you know, out of, out of Judah. But he somehow knows where to find this one. <laughs> so Samuel has died and Saul's in trouble and God will not answer his prayers. And so he says, I need information from the, the supernatural world. So he goes to this woman's house. She doesn't know who he is. She finds out fairly quickly. I'm, I'm going to click out anyway. It's kind of an interesting passage. So let's go down here just a bit. 
So the woman says, who shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud, a loud voice. Kind of, it freaks her out. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So something about being actually able to get Samuel, as opposed to hoodwinking this guy, or, doing, or getting to some other evil spirit, maybe that she's used to, she knows, I got Samuel here, and that means I'm in heap big trouble. Because this, this is Saul. This is who Samuel would talk to about the things of God. And then the king says to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. The word there is Elohim. The disembodied dead are referred to as Elohim. Now again, if this is about attributes, that's ridiculous. Okay, you know, an Israelite's dead aunt or, or deceased child or grandpa or grandma, they are not at the level of the God of Israel. They just aren't. It has nothing to do with a specific set of unique attributes. So what does it mean? Biblical writers would use Elohim as a word to denote and describe a member of the disembodied spiritual world. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with attributes. Yahweh is an Elohim. And there are lots of Elohim because there are lots of spirit beings in the spiritual world. But no other Elohim is Yahweh. And you don't get that theology from the word Elohim. Where you get it is you read the text carefully and you, and you realize this particular Elohim is described in ways that no other Elohim ever are described. This one is the creator, not only of, of, all, of our, our physical world, the embodied world, but he's the creator of them, the other Elohim. He is sovereign, he is omniscient, he is omnipotent. Not only do the biblical writers never describe any other Elohim in those terms, but they specifically deny those attributes to other Elohim. All an Elohim is, is a spirit being. Yahweh is an Elohim, no other Elohim is Yahweh. He is, I like to say, species unique. There's only one of those. But they're all Elohim because they're all part of the spiritual world. The disembodied human dead are Elohim, why? Because they're no longer embodied. They are now in the afterlife, they're in the spiritual world. It's not very, a really hard concept, but it's hard for us because we never have this discussion. We avoid passages like Psalm 82, or we make up stuff about them and say, well, that's just a bunch of Jewish guys. There's nothing to see here, citizen, move along. And there are lots of passages like this. Now, I'm, I talked about hierarchy a little bit earlier. In the ancient Near Eastern conception of the divine, the supernatural bureaucracy, there are always tears. In the Israelite version of this, the tears are as follows. And you're gonna see this graphic at the end of the day, and it's gonna, it's gonna kinda of shock you, because uh, it, it'll have a different context for our discussion. But at the top is Yahweh. Yahweh is more than one person at the same time. 
Now, you know, today we're not going to go through the Old Testament evidence. My dissertation was actually, actually included God as man in the Old Testament, the idea of a Godhead in the Old Testament. That's where, where, the, where Trinitarian thinking comes from, a Godhead idea. It begins in the Old Testament. So we have Yahweh as a Godhead at the top. The middle tier are the sons of God. This is not an ontological term. It doesn't tell you what a, what a thing is. It tells you what a thing does, what their role is. I have a book out on angels. I don't know if your resource center has this one. But we have another problem with the way we think about the supernatural world, and that is our vocabulary. Vocabulary works this way. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're an English major or semantics or you had a good high school English teacher, you know about semantics. It's word meaning. Words never have just one meaning. They denote different things. So there are terms that describe the members of the heavenly host in terms of what they are by nature. That's our fancy word ontology, what a thing is. And these are terms like Elohim, Ruchot, spirits, okay? It just tells you what it is. And then there are terms that describe rank in hierarchy. Sons of God is probably the leading one for this because in royal bureaucracy of the ancient Near Eastern world, who got the most important positions? Typically family members. You know, there was wisdom in that because their family, they'll do a good job, and their family, I keep my eye on them, okay? There is an upper elite that often included family members. They get the really big administrative jobs. And then you have essentially like a, a bureaucratic staff that are essential to preventing chaos in an administration. In fact, because there's more of these, they're probably, you know, some of the most important. They are described with terms that describe the specific things they do. Angel is one of those terms. In Hebrew, it's malach. In Greek, it's angelos. It means messenger. It describes a task. What angel is is essentially a job description. Any given spirit being might take a message. When he takes the message, he's performing the task of a malach, of an angel, because it describes a task. Now, I'm going to give you a little heads up here. This is just to, to a little whet the appetite. Sons of God in the Old Testament and words like holy ones are overwhelmingly, in fact, almost exclusively used of members of the spiritual world. That is not true in the New Testament. They're the holy ones, and the sons of God are you. This is why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, when he's trying to get the Corinthians to stop fighting with each other, it's a really obscure passage. He says, look, why are you taking each other to court all the time? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? You could also translate the verb there, rule over. Don't you know that you outrank them? If you look at the hierarchy... We're the children of God. In the next world, in the, you know, in the new Eden, we outrank them. The vocabulary is transferred from the supernatural world to us. I often get asked, why should I care about angelology, the supernatural world? Because the way God, and we're going to go through a lot of this today, 
The way God looks at his heavenly family, his heavenly host, his heavenly children, his heavenly bureaucracy, if you will, the way God looks at them and the way he involves them in what he does is a template for how God looks at you, how God looks at us, and how God looks at us as, as partners. Family and partnership, identity and mission. The supernatural realm is a template for our realm. But we typically avoid angelology like the plague, or we just say wacky stuff. It's a neglected area of serious biblical study. But we're gonna see this again. Now, I often get questions, specific questions. I'll go through these quickly. This won't take too long, we'll finish on time. People often ask, well, what about those Bible verses that say there's none besides me? There's none like me. These are phrases that are not denying the existence of other Elohim because there are verses that affirm the existence of Elohim. So unless you love a hopelessly contradictory Bible, okay, we need to adjust our thinking. These are not statements of denial of existence. They are statements of incomparability. And that's easy to demonstrate. I mean, we could take a tour through Deuteronomy. We don't have time for that. But if you look at Deuteronomy 4.35, there's one of these statements. Besides me, there's no God. There's actually 11 variations to this. Uh, all kind of similar, but expressing the same thought. There's none besides me. Well, if you looked at Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 29, all the way up to Deuteronomy 32, 17, which we just looked at a few moments ago, you will see that elsewhere in Deuteronomy, the reality of other Elohim is affirmed. Okay, you don't have four or five affirmations, and then verse 35, we have a contradiction. All, is it, all that it's saying is there's a lot of Elohim. Yahweh is among them, but none of them are like him. He's unique. That's all it is. So, you know, these statements are not an obstacle to what I'm saying. This is my favorite illustration of this, and I'm not going to click out to save time here. But there are two occasions, Isaiah 47, and yes, believe it or not, the book of Zephaniah is good for something. Okay? <laughs> so, Zephaniah 2.15 <laughs> the poor minor prophets, man. They just <laughs> okay. These phrases occur in these passages. In Isaiah 47, it's the city of Babylon saying, there's none besides me. What? Babylon thinks that the, she's the only city that exists? She's denying the existence of all other cities? That's ridiculous. The prophet wouldn't say that either because the prophet's not a dunderhead. Okay? In Zephaniah, it's Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Different context. This is where he's doing his ministry. Nineveh says, there's none besides me. They're not saying, I'm the only city on the planet. All the other cities aren't real. No, it's saying, we're the best. We're incomparable. It's all it is. FAQ number two, why does God need a council? We looked at 1 Kings 22, we looked at Daniel 7. I will click out to Daniel 4, it's kind of an interesting passage. This is Nebuchadnezzar, okay, remember Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he sees a watcher that is a holy one here in verse 13 comes down from heaven 
and you know, they're gonna talk about his dream. And essentially the, the holy one, the watcher says, hey, I sure hope you like to eat grass because that's gonna be your diet for a while. You're going to be driven insane. You're gonna be temporarily insane as a judgment from God because of your hubris and your pride. And he, look at what he says here. You go down to uh, verse 17. He says, the sentence upon Nebuchadnezzar is by decree of the watchers, plural. The word of the holy ones, this decision is according to the word of the holy ones, plural. But a few verses later, we see, let me scroll down here, come on, come on, keep going. Let me go back here, 24. This is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the most high. There's only one of those. So the same sentence, the same judgment on Nebuchadnezzar is decreed by a group and by the most high. This is participation. God allows them to participate. You say, well, well what, why does God need a council? The answer is, he doesn't. He just likes to do stuff like this. He likes to create beings who are like him and let them partner with him. God doesn't need anything. I like to, when I get this question, I like to flip it around and say, why does God need you? Why does God need the church? I mean, couldn't God like just decide who's gonna be a believer and oh, we'll call it good now. I mean, I'm just tired of waiting for the great commission. I mean, good grief, you know, look, look what time it is here. Can't he do that? Why did, did God have to give the Great Commission? No. God could just make all these decisions himself. But he doesn't do that. He likes the family business. Okay? That's what he wants. He wants children who are part of the family business. He's got supernatural children who work with him in that realm. He's got believers, human children of God in this realm who help him do what he wants done here. He doesn't need anything. What about Jesus? How can he be the son of God if other divine sons of God are real? Again, it sounds like a difficult question, but it's a really easy question. John 3.16, you probably all know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his... See, only begotten is what a lot of translations have. Only begotten son. Some have a better translation I'll get to in a moment. The Greek word there is monogenes. Now, in the old days of biblical scholarship, which was the first half of the 20th century backward, scholars thought that monogenes was composed of two Greek words. Monos, which means one or only. Mono, again, we can see that pretty easily. And then the second half they thought was from a verb, genao, to mean beget, like in having children. Mono, genes, only begotten. That's actually where the translation comes from. Second half of the 20th century, that changed because there was more Greek material of the same Greek dialect as the New Testament, the Koine Greek. Actually, thousands and thousands 
you know, of lines worth of new material. And scholars were able to determine that, you know what, we were wrong about that. Monogenese actually comes from monos and gene, which means kind, one of a kind, unique. This is why some of your more recent translations will translate that term as unique or something like that. And the, and the really good sort of test case for that is Hebrews 11:17. This is the Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. And you get to Abraham and, and it says this, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son. Okay, Bible trivia time. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. He wasn't even the firstborn, generally speaking. You had Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of, of Abraham by Hagar. So that tells you that the monogenes here, again, only son. Let's just open up our interlinear pane. Click on only, monogenes. It can't mean the only one that exists. It does mean unique. What, what was unique about Isaac? He's Sarah's boy, who, who could not have children. He is the son of the promise. That's why he's monogenes. And that's why Jesus is monogenes. He is unique. What makes Jesus unique among all other heavenly beings? He is Yahweh, who is unique. And that's actually why, Jesus, we're not going to go into John chapter 10, but that's actually why Jesus quotes Psalm 82 verse 6 in John 10 to defend his deity. He's saying, look, fellas, doesn't your own, doesn't your own scripture say, have God speaking to other sons of God? His point is that, you know, there are other sons of God out there who are not human, they're supernatural. That's point number one, dudes. Okay, so when I say I'm more than a man, your own scripture says that that category exists. So don't tell me it doesn't. And then he had just said, I and the Father are one. So I'm not only like a member of the council in the supernatural world, I'm the Lord of the council. Okay, you know, I am him. And he follows that he follows that in verses 37 38 by saying, the Father is in me, and I'm in the Father. That's why he quotes it. You know, just to, to stick it to him. I, love, I like when Jesus sticks it to him. <laughs> Significance, this is our last slide for, for this session. What I want you to take away from this, again, think of the template. The way God looks at his supernatural family and his partnership relationship with them is the way he looks at you. Because his supernatural family, do you realize this, existed before human creation. Okay, we're gonna look at that in the next session, but in Job 38, the sons of God were witnesses when God laid the foundations of the world, and then God goes on to create humankind. He already has a family, God already has kids. Okay, before we get to Adam and Eve. And his relationship with them and his partnership with them are going to serve as a template for what he wants on earth.
what God wanted on earth. Now, by the way, I, I, I have a, a new little book I self-published. You can get it on Amazon, uh, What Did God Want? And part of, this, part of this content today is going to be in there. But that book is for the new believer. So if you, if you follow my work, you kind of know the drill already here. But the, the academic book about the stuff we're talking about today is the unseen realm. If you're an academic person, you like to read books with footnotes, you like to do research, you like primary sources, you like to, to chase the bunny trails back into scholarship, that's the book for you, trust me. That book took 15 years to put together, okay? It is abundantly footnoted. It has a companion website with more data and more information, more sources. I have collected a bibliography that, I can't make it accessible to the public, but I do send people things occasionally when they need to do research and they can't get to it. All the best stuff is not available free on the internet. If you live near a college or a seminary library, you can get access to peer-reviewed research journal articles through JSTOR and the ATLA Religion Database. But some people don't have that, so I've collected things. I have almost 6,000 resources, peer-reviewed resources on all the content of Unseen Realm. Okay, I'm not making anything up. Okay, the dirty little secret of Unseen Realm and the work I do is that Mike never had an original thought, okay? Everything is peer-reviewed. What I do is I connect dots. I'm a synthesizer. And hopefully a, someone who is, you know, my ministry, if, if I can use that word for what I do, is to take peer-reviewed scholarship and make it decipherable to people who won't go out and get degrees. Just anybody who cares, okay, about the biblical text, I wanna try to make that comprehensible and decipherable. That's why we do our podcast, that's why we do the books. So the big one's Unseen Realm. Supernatural, which Stovall, you know, is, has been kind enough to, to purchase a number of those for people, that is a distillation of Unseen Realm. That's the light version in that there's no footnotes, there's no you know, academic argumentation, it's, it's not in the dialect of academies, you know, that kind of thing. I had a good editor for Unseen Realm, just go up at Amazon, look at the reviews, I've got almost 900 reviews. It's readable, even though it's an academic book. But if you don't like reading books with footnotes, get supernatural. What does God want is for the new believer to sort of prepare them for supernatural and then for the next one. And the other books are sort of drill downs and Carrie and Stovall were nice enough to proof what does God want and made a lot of content improvements to that. So just be aware of it. But a number of the things that we're gonna talk about here, you'll get a little taste of in that. Or again, if, if, if you're a new believer, if you know someone who's searching, that would be a good book for them. So what did God want? The short answer is an earthly family with him forever. It's a real simple statement, real simple recipe. God created humanity because they otherwise wouldn't exist, obviously. He didn't create humanity because there was some like deficiency in himself. He wanted, just like he has in the supernatural world, he wanted 
beings in the embodied world, the human world, and he makes the world for these beings. He wants something like him to participate with him on earth, to both enjoy the creation, to steward it, to make the rest of the world like Eden. He gives them tasks. It's for their enjoyment and his pleasure. That's the original vision. You know, he has to do it because that's the only way it's gonna happen. So let's talk a little bit about Eden. Eden was more than a garden. Again, if you read you know, Unseen Realm or you know, Supernatural, you're gonna get a little bit of a discussion in Supernatural on some curiosities about Eden, and they're actually important. Eden is more than a garden. It's God's earthly home. It is superior to the rest of the earth. See, we, we grew up, I mean, I did as a, as a Christian. I became a Christian when I was a teenager, thinking that Eden is like the whole new, the whole created world. It's not. Eden was a little tiny piece, little tiny place in the created world. How do we know that? Because Genesis 2 gives us specific geography for it. When God creates humanity, he, he tasks them with going out and subduing, stewarding the earth. Okay, if it's a perfect environment, it doesn't need that. But it, it's something lesser than what Eden is. Eden is where God himself dwells. There is perfection there. The source of life is God. You know, these sorts of big ideas. So humans are tasked to multiply because you're going to need more than just you two okay, to pull this off. But you essentially are supposed to make the rest of the world like this place, to spread the good rule of God everywhere, to multiply what it's like everywhere to be in the presence of God. Life as it was meant to be. Eden is also called a mountain. Ezekiel 28, we might as well click out there. A lot of people, you know, this is easy to read over, this verse, but Eden isn't just a garden. Yes, in verse 13, Eden, the garden of God. Down in verse 14, God is talking about this cherub figure, and he says, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. Why is Eden described as a garden and a mountain? Is God confused? Is the writer confused? No. Gardens and mountains in ancient Near Eastern thought were the way you would describe the most wonderful environment and also the most remote environment because God is not like us. He's not us, he's, he's completely other. This is why, again, across the board in ancient Near Eastern thinking, the gods live in paradise. Think about who's writing the Bible. This is a, a subsistence economy, ancient Israel, patriarchs, nomadic lifestyle, maybe you have some settled you know, urban situations, but people are living day to day, hand to mouth. Unless you're the king or something like that, then you have a little bit better, but it's still a struggle. Well, surely the gods live in a better place than this. They do. It's a paradise. There's always enough water. There's always enough food. It's just wonderful. But they were also thought of as living in, on mountains because they're, they're other than us. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, the gods really don't want to have much to do with people. They're just kind of icky. They get, get in the way, they're irritating, you know, they snore, they make too much noise, you know. All sorts of complaints about humans. 
So the gods are somewhere else, or they're in heaven, because we don't live there. If you, if you make a, a, you know, a careful study of ancient Near Eastern thinking, the gods are in places humans don't live. Heavens, the seas, if you've seen it, you know, Aquaman, okay. <laughs> All right, these are places that are not for human habitation. Humans are cut off from living there. This is why Eden is described in these terms. It's a paradise, but it's also other. But God creates humans and puts them in this garden. It was where he was, and so where he is, his family is. We've alluded to Job 38. God's audience are the kids he already has in the supernatural world. They watch him create. And they are the audience for a momentous decision. After God lays the foundations of the world and the sons of God in Job 38 shout for joy, God has something else to tell them. And this gets us into the famous image of God passage, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. It's Adam, humankind, is a better translation. Let us make Adam, humankind, in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule. So again, it's plural. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So it's comprehensive, it's mankind, it's humankind, male and female. Have you ever noticed there's some strange things in this passage? If you haven't, maybe you will now, because I changed the colors of some of the words. Isn't that clever? Um, let us make humankind in our image. You have plurals. And then in the next verse, it switches back to singulars. Is the writer confused? Did he just flunk grammar? <laughs> now, I would suggest to you there's a point to doing that. We want to talk about that. There's lots of debate on the nature of the image. There's lots of debate on the plurals. The switch, you, you almost never hear commented on. We're going to go through all of them. Most Christians are taught that the us in the verse is the Trinity. There are a number of reasons, and I go through all of them in Unseen Realm, why that is a flawed idea. I'll just give you one. The Trinity, in any standard formulation or articulation of the doctrine, you have three co-equal, co-eternal, co-omniscient persons. They don't need information. So when God says, hey, let's make human, the other person in the Trinity, stop, I'm already there. <laughs> and, and he can't say, I thought of that before you did, because they're co-eternal. Okay, so why do we even need the conversation? Because we're not dealing with the Trinity. Okay, God, is speaking to his heavenly host, the family that already exists, and he says, I got a great idea. Let's create beings who are like us on the earth. Let's like take, you know, we got this neat family here, and I love it, love you guys, and I'd like to do it again. 
on this time, they're, they're going to be a little weird because they're going to have bodies. That's a little strange, you know, a little restricted, some limitations there. But, but let's do that. Now, we know, and I'll, I'll probably click out to a little bit later, that because it switches back to the singular, when God does create humanity, he is the lone creator. There are no other creators. But the plural is still there for a reason, and we'll talk about that. I want to take a bit of a rabbit trail, though, and talk about what the image is, because this is something that, you know, Stovall and I have had a number of conversations about. This is really important. And it's something that if we get a grasp of this, it will inform our identity, and not just our individual identity, but our collective identity in ways that might f seem to the ear obvious, but in our culture are anything but obvious. The image of God has these characteristics in scripture. Male and female possess it equally. It makes us distinct from all other earthly creatures. There's no hint in the text that we get it in stages, incrementally or partially. You either have it or you don't. There's no like growth and development into the image in a human sense here in the creation. And it's passed on generationally. When Adam and Eve have children in Genesis 5, their children are said to be in the image you know, of their father, the image of, of, of Adam, his own image. In Genesis 9, that language is applied to every human being. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man, he made humanity. And that's long after Adam and Eve. You've got lots and lots of people on the earth by the time that that statement is made. They are all imagers of God. Ooh, I said imagers. What do you mean, Mike? That's kind of an awkward term. It's actually important. Now, I'm going to put that up. A little rabbit trail here, a little story. I used to teach Christian ethics at a... Uh, I did it at a Bible college and at a Christian college, uh, which happened to be a, a Catholic school in Wisconsin. And I loved abortion day. This gives you a little insight into my personality. You say, well, how in the world could you love abortion day? Because I knew I would get to torment students on that day like I don't get to torment them on any other day. So what I would do is I'd go in and I'd say, hey, it's abortion day today. We're going to talk about abortion, Christian ethics. How many of you, and again, these are Christian schools, so I'd say, how many of you are pro-life? Like, you know, like every hand goes up, you know, which of course is predictable. And I would say, why? And they would, you know, they'd look at you again like you got two heads. You know, we're Christians, and you know, they'd go back and forth, and eventually somebody would say, well, life is sacred, and I'd say, why? And then somebody would wind up in Genesis 1, 26, and they'd say, well, because humanity is made in the image of God, and I would say, well, what does that mean? And then I would get the grocery list. See, that's what I'm waiting for, is the grocery list. If you read a lot of your the theologians, what I'm, what, what I'm going to tell you is my view is not a new view. It's, you know, I, again, Mike never had an original idea. 
but there are good exegetical reasons for it. But this is the grocery list. They would say things like, well, consciousness, self-awareness, sentience, the ability to pray, the ability to commune with God, emotions, having a soul or a spirit. You know, theologians land somewhere in here. And I would say, well, thank you for making a biblical pro-choice argument for me. And then they'd really look at you. And they're like, what? What, is, what do you mean? They'd be like my pug, like, what? Okay. Why do these things fail? Because they cannot be said to be present equally among all human beings. You go back to the list. Is everybody, does everybody have the same level of intelligence? Emotional aptitude? Is everybody's conscious, conscious, conscience the same? What about people in a coma? Do they lose the image? They're no longer conscious. I mean, you, you can just go down, you, you can pick off every one of these. If we even expand it to the animal kingdom, there's a whole field in psychology called animal cognition, which is actually fun to read. It's, it's something I'm interested in, not because I have pugs. There. I don't know where pugs rank on this. But I, re I remember reading a, a study one time where chickens scored better than toddlers on an intelligence test. Because, and we have, a, we have a chicken at home. Why do we have a chicken? I don't know. Okay. But if you let the chicken out, it, 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 it knows at night to go roost somewhere, you know, where it's safe. Like, it'll, it'll go back home. You want to do that with your toddler? Okay. That was the test. So, animal intelligence, I mean, you, 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 none of these work. They're not possessed equally among all humans. They're not, they can't be said to be actually present among all humans at different stages of human development, and some aren't even unique to, to mankind. All these are connected to brain function, except for soul and spirit, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you see what I mean? The little, you know, four, six-celled zygote, the thing that attaches itself to the wall of the uterus, that ain't praying to God. That's not having a single thought. It doesn't have a brain. It's not communing with the, the, with the supernatural, with the almighty. And then they, somebody in the audience in my ethics class would say, well, it will. I said, thank you, now we have potential persons. That's a pro-choice argument. And then you'd get, I'm gonna tell my pastor. I'm gonna. I'm going to, after this class, I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to go to the dean. And I'm just like, look, they, they know what day it is. They're expecting you. You know, just, okay, just go ahead. This is every semester. Okay, they get it. And I would tell them, look, I'm doing this to you because I don't want someone who is hostile to your faith to do it to you. Because they will destroy you. Okay? It'll, it, would take, it would take five minutes to destroy you. And some would enjoy it. I mean, these ideas make you vulnerable. What about soul and spirit? Well, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. Guess what? Animals have that in Genesis 2-7. So that's not unique to humans. Genesis 1-21. Another verse, animals have that. Every living creature, nefesh hachaya, living creature. See, it's obscured in your English translations. You don't know that's the word for soul, but it is. They also have a ruach, the word for spirit. 
Ecclesiastes 3.21, it just refers to animate life. There's animate life and then there's like plant life, okay? Man, what about the nishmat chayim, the breath of life? Well, that's nice. Genesis 7, 22 and 23 attributes that to all land animals as well. Again, it would take five minutes. So what is, okay, you know, I, inevitably I'd get, okay, smart guy, what is it? You know, they'd get, they'd get angry. <laughs> and I'd say, I'm glad you asked the question because it's important. So God created man in his own image is how most translations have this. I'm gonna suggest that we need to think of the image as a function or role rather than a quality or attribute inside a person. Because those qualities and attributes are not unique. Humans don't possess them equally. And in some cases they can be perceived as being even lost, again like the coma situation. The image is something that's a function. Let me, let me illustrate in English. If I say, believe it or not, this, this is really about a single, that little preposition in. In Hebrew it's b, the letter bet. Bet salem, in the image, okay? If I say, put the dishes in the sink, the word in denotes what? Location in the sink. If I say, I wrote the letter in pencil, now I'm not talking about location. I'm not using that little preposition to denote location. I'm talking about the instrument I used to do some writing, the tool. It has a totally different semantic, totally different meaning. If I say, I broke the vase in pieces, I'm not talking about instrument now or location, I'm talking about some result of some action that I did. Okay, try this one. If I say, I work in medicine, I work in ministry, I work in accounting, I work in education, what do I mean? It means I work as a doctor, a PA, a nurse. I work as a pastor, you know, somebody, you know, a staff person, some ministerial function of any kind, any type. I work as an accountant. I work as a principal, a teacher, an administrator, whatever. It describes function or role. That is what Genesis 1.26 is getting at. I could take you into the Hebrew grammar and talk about the bet of you know, predication, the bet dissension, and all that fancy Latin grammar stuff. This is a known category for the meaning of in, function. How does it work out practically? Try to think of it as a verb rather than a noun. Every human being is an imager of God. God's original intent was to create creatures like him to essentially be him as if he were there. They are his proxy. They are his representative, his agent to do things. Every human being is an imager of God. Another way to illustrate this is to go to one of the Ten Commandments. This is a familiar one. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we are sort of taught to think that this commandment is about swearing, you know, the, the, the verbal utterance of God's name in some defamatory or, you know, useless way. I want you to see something, again, that's obscured in English. Take is the Hebrew verb nasa, and I'm gonna do, just bear with me here, I'm gonna run a quick search just to show you a point. This is often the term, you'll look at the options over here, that is translated to bear, to carry, to support, to lift, okay? It's a verb that means all those things. Lift, carry, take, take up, pick up, that sort of thing to bear. Thou shalt not bear the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does it mean to bear a name? It means to be associated with it. I bear the name Christian. I bear the name, you know, like Logos employee. I am an extension of that name. I'm responsible for its reputation. Okay? To bear the name means to be a representative of that name. But the New Testament expresses this really nicely when Paul tells Peter, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Imaging God and bearing the name are two related concepts. It's really two ways of saying the same thing. Humanity was the representative of God, was the agent of God on, on earth. To be human is to be the image of God. It doesn't matter if you're a few cells in a woman's womb. It doesn't matter if you're old and you've lost your memory. It doesn't matter if you're in a coma. You, if you are human, you are God's imager. End of story. It doesn't matter what race, what income level. I mean, look at all the ways our, our culture divides people up into groups. I mean, we live, we live in a day when the best word for it is tribalism. It's like we all want to be in these little tribes and then they fight with each other constantly. You know, that is, that is so chaotically contrary to God's vision for humanity and the fact that God actually tells you how he looks at people. Every person God looks at as his representation. They are, they are him, as it were, on earth. Now that gets ruined by the fall. We enter into rebellion. We have the problem of sin. We are all in rebellion, and we need to be brought back into the family of God where we can actually function like God wants us to do, and we can actually represent him well, the way he wants things done. But every person you bump into is a potential candidate, not, not candidate's not a really good word, but every person you bump into is an estranged family member who was created for a specific reason, and that is to image God, to participate with God, to complete the tasks God wants, to give the earth the kind of life God wants people to have. It all goes back to Genesis 1, to this concept of imaging. 
bearing the name, representation. Again, in a fallen world, the redeemed are the ones who can do this as intended, and we're all estranged from God. Thankfully, we have a template. It's no coincidence that imaging language is used of Jesus. Again, it's not like a lucky, a lucky correlation. Oh, Paul got lucky. He used the word image a few times. You know, I bet he wasn't thinking about Genesis 1. I bet he was. I bet he was thinking about representation of God. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's the perfect image. He is the perfect representative. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. God has predestinated that all who believe will ultimately be conformed to the image of his Son. Does that mean we all look like Jesus? It'd be kind of sad if you're a woman, you know, just like, you know, I like the way I look, you know. We, again, look at how we think of this stuff. I'll be at my ideal weight. I'll have more hair. You know. <laughs> can, can we, like, not literalize everything so often? <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's just bigger stuff going on. You know, in, in 1 John 3, 1 John 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called, and we should be the children of God. And then John has this little, you look it up, he has this little parenthetical thought where he says, and that's what we are. And then he goes on and says, you know, someday we will be like him. We will be conformed to his image. Believers have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What a coincidence. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To image God is to become more like him. To use Jesus as your example. You follow Jesus, you imitate Jesus. Folks, this is discipleship, which is something that's basically lost in the modern church, okay? This is discipleship. You, be, you, you follow Jesus, you mimic him, you know, his behavior, his attitudes, what, you know, what he would do. And he, he gives us plenty of examples. And when you do that, you are being conformed to his image, and he is the perfect image of God. You are fulfilling your role. This is what you were intended to be. It's what every person was intended to be. All in the same family, again, all participating with God in making the world the way God wanted it to be in the first place. That's the task, and we've quoted 2 Timothy 2.19 already. So what about the plurals? Again, I don't think this is a conundrum. Let's start with what's clear. God is the lone creator of all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Earthly world, spiritual world. Colossians 1 tells us that. We image God, our creator. That is, we serve, we partner with him as his agents, his representatives, his proxies, in our sphere, which is this world. They do the same thing in their world. They have the same Father, the same Creator. The reason it's plural is because it loops them into the conversation, his supernatural children, the members of his host, the council, whatever, again, metaphor you, you want. They image God, their Creator, in the spiritual realm. We are to be mirror images, pardon the pun, it's deliberate in this case, 
We are mirror images of each other, as in heaven, so on earth. Okay? It's, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has two families. In Eden, because heaven came to earth, you realize again, that's what Eden is. This is where heaven comes to earth. God dwells among men. He creates a human family to coexist and co-partner with the supernatural family that already exists. Where God is, his family, his entourage is with them. He has a conversation with them. It's not the only time when he says, hey, let us do this and that. God has conversations with the members of the host in other places, in Genesis, in Eden. They're there, we're there. God's original plan was to have these two families together. You realize what that means? It means humanity was created to be fit for God's presence. That's the original plan. They're not barred from entry. They belong there. The most normal thing in God's mind is for humans to be with him because his other children are with him. He didn't create them to be separate. He created them to be one. This is why at the end of the road in sanctification, in a long, you know, fancy theological term for when we're glorified after death or after the Lord comes, we become like him, like Jesus. We don't, we don't merely become like angels. And we learn why in Hebrews 2, because the second person of the Godhead became a man to redeem man. So we are actually made like him, a little, little bit above them, a little bit above the angels. You know. But we are, we are there together in the new earth. You realize the Bible ends in Revelation the way it began in Genesis. It's just a new Eden and now it's global. But everybody who's there belongs there. It's the most normal thing to think in God's mind. The most abnormal thing for God to think is that his family is estranged from him. Both his supernatural family members rebel and his human family members rebel. They turn their backs on the things God wants them to have because they want autonomy. They want control. They want self-rule. They want it so badly that they're willing to throw away all that they have to think they're in control of their own lives, their own situations. They make their own autonomous decisions. That's abnormal for, you know, in God's mind. That's what he doesn't want. Again, the, the plural's co-representation is the key idea. Let's talk a little bit about rebellion and evil. Now, when, whenever I jump into this, the question naturally comes up, well, didn't God know what that was going to happen? Of course God knew that was going to happen. He's an omniscient being. Of course he knows what's going to happen. Well, you know, then why did he do it? Why did, why did he make us? 
it's, it's, it's a related question is, why is there evil? Can't God just get rid of evil? If he doesn't get rid of evil, he can't be good. You know why God doesn't get rid of evil? How many of you are X-Files fans? This is gonna date me a little bit, okay. There's this wonderful episode in the X-Files where Mulder and Scully find a genie, you know, rolled up in the carpet, okay. And Mulder figures out, this is a genie, like, like in Aladdin. And so the genie says, well, congratulations, numbskull, you get three wishes, okay? And so his first wish, it's, it's, the, it's the, you know, caricature wish, I want world peace. <laughs> and then Mulder goes outside of the room that they're in, and everybody's gone. <laughs> and he, and he's, he's running down the street, Scully! Scully, Shirley Scully's here. You know, it's like, nope. Got any more wishes? <laughs> you know? So it's a good illustration. Yes, God could wipe out evil like that. But to do it, he has to wipe out all the beings he has made who are like him. Because when we're created as God's imagers, and when they were created as God's imagers, you know, they're co-imagers just in different realms, they are his representatives. Well, to do the job of sort of being God, being a partner with God, to do that job, God shared his attributes with us. In theology, they're called communicable attributes. That's your impressive theological term for the day, okay? They're attributes God shares creativity, intelligence, rationality, emotions, and freedom, free will. You can't eliminate that one and keep the rest of them because then you wouldn't really be like God, would you? Free will is actually essential to imaging, to the whole concept. Now God knew that, you know what? I still think this is a really good idea because it's what I want. I see the end goal. I want a, a, a human family, an earthly family with my supernatural family. I want them together. I want to enjoy them part partnering with me in their realm like I enjoy you partnering with me in the supernatural realm. I want a family. It's, it's the natural impulse of God to want a family and to want partners. But I know that when I make them as my imagers and I share my attributes, I also am aware of one other thing. They're not me. They're like me, but they're not me. That means they lack my perfect nature. That means at some point, they're going to abuse the good gifts that I've given them. And God's right. Rebellion happens in the supernatural realm and it happens in the earthly realm. Now, what does it tell you about God though? You say, well, that's not very satisfying because, because look at all the misery, look at all the, the violence, look at all the bad stuff in the earth, you know, and we look at all the suffering. Since we know that wasn't what God intended, God hates it too. But here's the, here's the key point. In God's mind, and you can blame God for this decision if you like. In God's mind, 
the terrible things that would result from his initial decision to make us was better than not having us at all. You know, at the end of the day, God makes that call. Now, you can sit there and be the proud atheist and say, well, I would rather not exist. Yeah. Well, then why don't you just go out and you know, jump off a bridge then? You know, show us the, the commitment to your own statement. You know, here's a truck coming by, let's have it, okay? They're lying to you. They're just trying to win a debate. Okay, we, and we have to have, you know, we want life. Life is a, is, is a wonderful thing. And even with suffering, I mean, some of the people who suffer the most will tell you that life is a wonderful thing because they, they kind of know, you know, from one end to the other. And, you know, we have to come to grips with suffering. That's why we were created to be family, to be a community, to alleviate the suffering of family members, to alleviate the suffering of other imagers of God. If you looked at people this way, you might actually, you know, get off your butt and do something, okay? You know, let, let's be honest, I, I often compare, or, and you all know the difference here. And again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be critical of just church in general. Uh, again, not every, not every place I've been in church, you know, it hasn't been this experience, but I've seen it. A lot of churches tend to treat people, and even a lot of small groups, a lot of Christians, tend to treat the collective like it's a business instead of a family. You know you would think differently if you had some person in church come up to you and say, you know, I can't pay my rent this month. I don't know what I'm going to do. If that was your brother, you'd know what to do. Okay? If that was your sister, you wouldn't even have to think twice about it. It's, it's, it's a whole different mental dynamic. Okay, that, that is how God looks at us. That's the kind of thing God has as an expectation. If we will get it into our heads, again, if we would, if we would think of ourselves the way God thinks of us, okay, as, as humans, and especially within the church, because we're no longer estranged, we are redeemed, we are brought back into the family, we have the Holy Spirit to assist us, we have other people who are like-minded, this should be the most normal thing in the world. And, and you know, if it actually happened and when it happens, because it does happen, if it actually happened with frequency, do you think people would notice? Of course they notice, because it's abnormal. Okay, it's not the norm. It gives you a little taste of what life should be like, again, in, in God's world. It all goes back to this imaging concept. And yes, there's evil and there's suffering, but again, God was willing to be grieved himself. You think you're, you're, you're grieved about suffering because of the stuff you see in the world? God sees everything. Okay, you don't have anything up on God. You don't have a greater awareness of the, of the misery and the suffering of the world than, than God does. He is fully aware. This is why Scripture, God hates evil. It grieves him. Now, did he know it was going to happen? Yeah, he did. But that was preferable than never having us at all. 
You know, it's, that that is, is just God's nature. Now, God is actively trying, working with people, through people, to be his agents. Again, and, and it's the redeemed that can function in this way, the, the way that, that it was all intended to work. God is actively engaged with people to bring estranged imagers back into the family. We call that evangelism, okay, giving them the gospel. And then building a community where suffering is alleviated. It's never going to be totally removed because that's the age to come. But in this age, we have to try to address it. And this is what God wants. Now, the, the question that goes with this is, you know, you inevitably wind up in this predestination, you know, conversation. Let me just click out to a verse, because I think this one's really important, too. Yeah, God knew what was going to happen. Well, well, then if he foreknew it, he, then he, this is what God wants. He predestinated it. He wants suffering. He's corrupt. He's evil. You know, he's this, that, and the other thing. Well, really? I think you're making some assumptions there. And I love to go to this passage. It's not the only one of its kind, but I think it's the clearest. This is David at Kyla. And you say, good grief. I know who David is, but, you know, Kyla, I'm probably going to forget that name. It's okay. Just remember the story. David is fleeing from Saul, like he does most of the time, okay, until he becomes king. Let me just read through the passage. Now they told David, you know, somebody tells David, behold, the Philistines, who I like to characterize as the Klingons of the Old Testament, okay, <laughs> The Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the, the threshing floors. That's where they store food. That's, that's bad because people like to eat. At least I do. Okay. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, should I go up and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. I mean, how much more than if we go to Kilah against the armies of the Philistines? So they're safe in Judah they're holed up, you know, that's, they're, they're away from Saul's gang. You know, they're a small group. Saul has a whole army. If they leave the, the relative safety of where they're at and they go up to the Philistines and they're kind of exposed, plus it's the Philistines. They're just nasty. So David says, well, let me go ask God again. David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, get up. <laughs> Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Translation, just tell your men not to worry. David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kilah. David's the hero. He saves the city. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kilah, so this is another character in the bigger story of David, he hears that David's you know, going to Kilah, so he wants to go down and talk, you know, talk there. He had come down with an ephod in his hand. This is probably part of the breastplate of the high priest. Again, this is after the Mosaic era. <clears throat> but it's, it's the thing, one of the things that God had told them to use to ask questions of God, to inquire of God. So the, the priest comes down. It was told Saul that David had come to Kilah. So not only does Ahimelech hear, but Saul hears that David is in Kilah. We don't know how he heard, but he gets wind of this. And Saul's like, oh, this is awesome. Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. That David is a moron. 
Okay, why is that a big deal? Because David's inside the city. It has gates and bars. You know what Saul's going to do? This is siege warfare. You just take your men down there and you surround the city and then you wait. You cut off food going in. You cut off water going in. And you just wait. And you say, the people in your city will get to eat and drink when we get David. Hand him over and we're out of here. Life goes back to normal. So Saul's like, this idiot has entered into a walled city. Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Kilah to besiege David. Let's go back up here a little bit. Okay. Saul summoned all the people to go to war to go down to David, or to go down to Kilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew, so now David somehow hears, that Saul has found out and he's plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, hey, better bring the ephod over here. I have some questions for God. So then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? So he asked two questions. Is Saul going to come down here? And when he does, will the men of the city turn me over to Saul? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. There. Okay, I'm getting lost here. There we go. Come on. Right here. Okay, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kilah, I mean, he asked it again. Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, yep, they will surrender you. They're going to hand you over. Now, what, if you were David, what would you do? You would do what David does. Uh, let's get out of here. David leaves, and if we read the rest of the chapter, we realize Saul hears that too, and he turns around and goes home. Now, do you get the point? God foreknew two things that never happened. Saul does not get to the city, and the men do not hand David over, because David ain't there. Foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. God foreknows two things that never happen. If they were predestinated, they'd have to happen. So don't go blaming God for wanting evil. You can blame God for giving you life and making you like him, which included the attribute of freedom but you can only blame yourself for abusing the good gift of God. Okay, that's the point. So if you, if you take this back to Genesis, what does God want? He wants a family. God knows, again, pardon the pun, the fallout of the decision. He knows that evil's going to arise up because we're not him. We're like him, but we're not him. But God would rather have us and have that circumstance develop 
and be grieved by it even more than we are, then never have us at all. The, the, the problem, you know, the disconnect for us is we don't, not only don't we look at, we don't look at other people this way, we don't even look at ourselves that way. You know, it, it Stovall I know talks a lot about, and, and you know, I talk a lot about identity and mission. It all goes back to this. God wants humans in his family. He wants humans sharing space with his presence. That is the most normal condition for God when he thinks of humans because that is what he originally planned. God's work, and we're going to talk about in the next session, we're going to talk about the rebellions and the meta-narrative and how rebellions just, especially supernatural rebellion, just sort of change the landscape and how that leads up to the mission of Jesus and our mission as, as imagers of Jesus. But that whole you know, set of circumstances, what God wants, never changes. There was never a plan B. There is only plan A. Because the meta-narrative of Scripture is going to be, now that we've had rebellion, now that we've had the fall, and we've had, there's going to be more than one fall, more than one supernatural rebellion, more than one human rebellion. Now that we have essentially the world, you know, going to hell in the handbasket as the idiom, you know, we, we use to express it, just this total chaos. God doesn't say, I must have had a bad day. Maybe I can fix this with some other plan. There is no other plan. So the story of the Bible is God trying to return humanity back to recover its identity, to bring people back into the family, and then partner with him to repeat the process. That's what it's all about. And we are constantly thwarted by supernatural enemies and the humans that are deceived by those supernatural enemies and the effects that supernatural rebellion has on us to impede God getting his way. Okay, it always seems <clears throat> that the... Uh, the bad guys get the most attention. <laughs> uh, so we, we're going to have a full session on, I'm going to try to cover as much ground as I can. Again, it's still a bird's eye view of divine rebellions. And yes, the S on the end of the word is intentional. I like to start this session this way. If you asked the average Christian, why is the world so wicked? Why is humanity so depraved? Why is the world the mess that it is, okay? The answer you're going to invariably get is the fall, okay? The fall. The fall gets blamed for everything. If you asked an Israelite, or a first century Jew, the same question. Hey, why is the world so wicked? 
Why is the world such a mess? Why do we have this chaos and suffering and so on and so forth, you know, sin? That is not the answer you would get. The Israelite and the first century Jew would not just say, well, it's the fall, Genesis 3. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is the way it is. The first one is the fall. They would acknowledge that. The fall is the entrance of rebellion into God's good world, both on a supernatural level, because we have a supernatural being that decides to interfere and impede with what God wants for humanity in Genesis. But there are also two other rebellions. There are two other reasons why the world is the way it is. And these other two reasons, you have a rebellion in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, with the sons of God, and you have what happens at Babel. Unfortunately, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a little bit as to why this is in a moment, but again, it's been my experience that the second one of these, the sons of God episode, is regularly either ignored in the church or demythologized. Uh, it's explained away as something other than a supernatural rebellion. So you never get this part of the Israelite Jewish worldview. The Genesis 6 episode is a huge deal in intertestamental literature, which bleeds into the New Testament because the New Testament writers are part of what we call the second temple period. You get the temple rebuilt after the return from exile, all the way into 70 AD when it's destroyed again. That period, the New Testament is part of that. What happens in Genesis 6 is a really, really big deal in their view of depravity that overspreads the earth. So if we sort of don't have that one count, <clears throat> if we sort of remove that from the picture, we, we miss some significant elements to not only understand certain things in the New Testament, but also certain things in the old. The third one, Babel, this is a Sunday school story that everybody knows. I didn't run into Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 until I was a doctoral student, as far as what in the world is going on there. And part of the reason is because our modern English translations do not utilize the Dead Sea Scrolls in those verses, and in other verses in Deuteronomy 32 as well. So we never see what the text originally had there and why it's important. Because Paul and others dip into Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 with a fair amount of regularity. And that passage is the foundation for what we today loosely call spiritual warfare. But you'll never see it unless, again, you have like the Dead Sea Scrolls to help you. You'll never see it. Even though Paul alludes to it in Acts 17, you'll just never see it. You won't, it'll look like what Paul's saying has no context for it, like he's just making something up. Because I can't find that in the Old Testament. Again, it's a textual issue, it's a manuscript issue. But all three of these, again, would be the Israelite Jewish explanation for why the world is the mess that it is. And as far as what, again, pun intended, I'm so clever, the fallout of the three rebellions, the three falls, if you will, 
The first one, what that incurs to humanity is estrangement from God and death. Romans 5.12, wherefore so by one man sin into the world and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men. By the way, it doesn't say guilt there. It says death. Death passed upon all men. So we have an estrangement from God and we have a death problem. The second one is viewed, again, by Second Temple period Jews as a root cause of the proliferation of depravity. It's not that humans aren't depraved because they fell in Genesis 3. They, they, it was, these were willful acts of rebellion. And you have plenty of other willful acts of sin that, that ensue from it. But Genesis 6 was thought to be about the proliferation, the acceleration of depravity among human beings. And in the Old Testament period, it was a lethal threat that arose from this event to the people of God as the people of God were known then, the Israelites. And the third one is really about abandonment and fragmentation of God, and not only God to the rest of humanity besides Israel, but really all of the nations from each other, and especially to God. Now, if you were a Second Temple period Jew, and your, your answer to why the world is the, is the mess that it is, were these three things, you expect the Messiah to cure all three problems, not just one. You expect the Messiah to not just fix Genesis 3, but to fix the others. And that is actually what you get in the New Testament. It's just that we're sort of blind to the other two. So I want to talk a little bit about each of these. Again, if you're one of my people, if you're an academic and love books with footnotes, Unseen Realm has an awful lot of data. I have a whole book that's going to be, the title's going to be Demons, but it's not going to be out for a while. I've already turned it in. Who knows what the publisher's going to do there? They'll do something. But that's going to have a, a truckload of data in it as well. And so those are the two sources. But Unseen Realm is out, and you can get more detail if you want it. Now, what I want to say about the first rebellion is that if I asked you, hey, you know that story in Genesis 3 about the serpent? Who was the serpent? Like, like every Christian is going to say, well, that was, that was Satan. It was the devil. In other words, the serpent there was more than a snake. Now, every Christian that I've ever met affirms that idea. But you'd be amazed at how much resistance there is in the academy to saying, to reading Genesis 3 that way. Again, I'm not going to go into why that is, but if you're, if you're going to check up on Mike after today's meeting, oh, a lot of scholars don't agree with that. I'm telling you that already. I, I already know. And their reasons for doing so are things I address in books and, you know, take apart their answer and show why it's not really a good, you know, answer. But the New Testament is one. We're dealing with more than a snake. In other words, Genesis 3 is not teaching us a zoology lesson. It's not teaching us a lesson about the evolution of snakes. You'll read that in creationist literature. Oh, the serpent originally had legs and uh, cursed to the ground. No, it, look, it's not teaching us about some development of a creature. It's not about zoology. It's not about biology. Again, we could go into all sorts of imagery 
about this being. And I could show you all sorts of data about how both in Mesopotamia and Egypt, supernatural throne guardians, they guarded the presence of the deity, were cast as serpents or dragons. Because those are dangerous. <laughs> okay, like if I was, if I was writing a, a story now and, and providing illustrations and I wanted to talk about bodyguards, I wouldn't put like a bunch of guys that wait up, you know, like they look like they're teenagers and you know, they're not muscular. I mean, you're gonna draw those, those individuals as, as bad looking dudes. Because we just have this association with bodyguards and security, you know, especially around you know, kings and whatnot. They're, they're armed to the teeth. They're a threat. If you step out of line, you're gonna pay the price. This is the standard way, or one of the standard ways of describing a throne guardian in the ancient world. So what we have here is we have an individual, an entity, and you can read Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, that has close proximity to God. But in Isaiah 14, this individual decides, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, I, will, I wanna be like the most high. I will be the most high. I wanna be the one in charge of this. I don't like God's decision to make humans part of our family. Okay, I want to be the ruler of the council. You know, you'll get language like this in these passages where Eden is the, is the cosmic mountain, the, the place where God dwells. Again, portrayed as a mountain because it's remote and transcendent. You have this individual rebelling and being cast out, cast away, but not before enticing humanity to rebel. So we have rebellion in the supernatural world and the human world. Revelation 12 and 20, this individual is identified as the serpent or the devil, God's original, the original rebel who becomes sort of God's original adversary. And the cost of his rebellion is death to humanity and estrangement, separation from God. But the heart of the story is a supernatural rebellion. It's not a lesson about snakes and about biology and zoology. Now, this chart here is hard to read. It's, in, it's from Unseen Realm. But all I want you to notice is the right-hand column. I have red, green, and yellow. Those are places where Genesis 3, Isaiah 14, and Ezekiel 28 overlap. It's a good number of places. On the left-hand side, you have Hebrew terms for the dwelling place of God. Again, Eden is more than a garden. The serpent is more than a snake. These are images designed to convey the dwelling place of God. God actually came to earth. He created people to be in there, you know, in, on the earth with him with his supernatural family. One of them was a rebel and brings death because Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, driven away from the presence of God, away from the tree of life, the thing which gave them, the two things which gave them contingent immortality that is lost. It's not just a story about snakes and people in a garden. There's transcendent imagery here 
that, that takes us into the supernatural thought processes. What it really you know, is trying to get at is chaos, disruption, disorder began in this place. It began in God's home. And the result was humanity now is going to live in a broken world. They're the product of a broken home. It's not what God wants it to be. We scholars use words like chaos to describe every, every condition or set of conditions that is contrary to the way God wants things. And this is where it begins. It's a disruption in, what, in the way God wants things. The serpent figure is cast down. Okay, in all three accounts, Genesis 3, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, cast out of the presence of God to the earth. Now the earth, interestingly enough, one of the Hebrew words for earth is Eretz. It's the same word, or one of the same words that can be used to describe the realm of the dead, the underworld, the bad side of the spiritual world. The serpent figure becomes Lord of the dead in Israelite thinking, why? Because from this moment on, everything dies. The earth is not what it should be. It's cursed because of what happens here. It's going to decay and corrupt and be the contrary, the opposite of what God wants it to be. It's death. If you like stranger things, think of the upside down, okay? It's a place of decay. The very air is like a contagion. It's pathogenic. I mean, all these things, it, it's death personified. And its Lord, its keeper, becomes known in scripture and in other texts, even, even texts that aren't in the Bible, as Lord of the dead. He owns humanity. He owns their destiny from this point on because separated from God, they will die and they'll stay dead. So the Messiah is supposed to fix this. The realm of death you could think of also as decreation. Think of the reverse of what happens in Eden. In Eden, God brings life. He creates. He brings it into being. It's in perfect harmony with him. As a result of Genesis 3, all of that is reversed. Everything is the opposite. This is why later on in the Bible, inhospitable and uninhabitable places will be described with underworld terminology, like Sheol, the grave. The wilderness is uninhabitable. The wilderness is where the demonic lives because if you go out there, you'll die. It's the realm of the dead. Again, all these things are, are, are metaphorical to convey a certain idea about the way God wants life to be and the way it unfortunately is in our world. You know, you, you read through you know, the Old Testament. I have a few examples here. If you read Isaiah 13, this is why you get desert creatures. The writer uses the vocabulary of desert creatures to describe demonic beings. 
It's not that owls and hyenas are demonic beings. It's that they eat dead things. They're unclean. They are death personified in some way. And where they live is where place, things go to die. Everything that's threatening, everything that's in decay, everything that's dead is the anti-Eden. It's the other side. Again, Stranger Things, it's the upside down. It's, it's the inversion of the way things are supposed to be. There's a certain logic to this. In the Day of Atonement ceremony with Azazel, and you could go to, might as well go to Leviticus 16. This may be unfamiliar to some. If you go to Leviticus 16, again, everybody knows this is the, um, the Day of Atonement passage. The one time of year, Aaron, you know, goes into the Holy of Holies. It says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats, remember the two goats, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, preposition, divine name, and the other lot is for Azazel. What in the world is that? I mean, a lot of translations have for the scapegoat. Okay, Azazel is actually a proper name. In Second Temple literature, Azazel is Satan. It's the devil figure. It's, it's, it's the figure in charge of the dead. It's the anti, you know, God, the anti, the, the flip equivalent of Eden. And you say, what are they offering sacrifices to Satan? No. Look at what happens. The goat for Azazel, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord. That's the one that's killed and uses a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. What does the high priest do to the goat for Azazel? He puts his hands on it, symbolically transferring the sins of the nation. Because the Day of Atonement is like hitting the reset button, okay? It's rebooting. He puts his hands on the head of the goat for Azazel and they send it out into the wilderness, the place where death is. Because that's where sin belongs. It doesn't belong in the camp, okay, where the people of God are and the presence of God is. It belongs out there. They send, they don't, they're not offering to Satan, they're sending sin to where it belongs. Get it out of here. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, when, he, when they have to discipline a, a, a believer who's unrepentant for you know, immorality, they have to discipline this, this guy out of the church, that he's delivered unto Satan. It means he's sent out of the place that is holy ground, the church, because the glory of God dwells within each believer. We don't want sin here, we send it out. If the sin's taken care of, then he can come back in. This is just a little portion of what the Old Testament describes as, and we're gonna get into in detail, cosmic geography. There's a sense of things that are holy and sacred, sacred space and either normal profane space or evil space. 
things under the dominion of God and his presence and things under the dominion of something else. It's just illustrated here in this part of the ceremony for Azazel. I mean, you read that and that sounds just kind of weird. Goat for Azazel, what in the world's that? He's out in the wilderness because that's the realm of death. That, look at the desert, dude. Does that look like Eden looked? No. Okay, that's the whole idea. The Rephaim spirits. Just go to one passage here, because we'll talk about who the Rephaim are in a minute. But also in the underworld, in Sheol, that's the Hebrew word for the underworld, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. This is God's words to the supernatural rebel, Isaiah 14, who rebels, wants to be like the Most High, and instead is brought low, brought down to the earth and down to the underworld. Right up here, let's go up to verse, uh, verse nine, Sheol stirred up in, to meet you. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. You become weak as we become like one of us. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. It's Hebrews, Halal ben Shakar. Halal means shining one. The Latin translation in the Vulgate is Lucifer. That's what Lucifer means in Latin, shining one. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? The, the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? Again, you're made low. And even, even lower than the ground, you're in the Eretz, you're in, you're in Sheol, you're in the underworld. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Okay. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Now, if you look at other passages, let me see if I can find it here, if I can find my mouse. Uh, let's see, let's go down one. Uh, let's see, references to the grave and the dead in Isaiah 14. Find it here. Uh, let's see. Leaders of the earth. The shades right here. Let's just click on that. That's the term Rephaim. Where, have we, where will you see that term if you know your Old Testament well? Who are the Rephaim? It's one of the names for the giant clans. Why are they in Sheol? Why are they in the realm of the dead here? Because they got killed. You say, well, who cares? Let's go to the second rebellion. <laughs> here's, here's why you'll care. I'm pointing this out because that verse in Isaiah 14 is gonna be one of two or three verses in the Old Testament for the origin of demons. Genesis 6-4 is a controversial passage. The sons of God see the daughters of men. They cohabit with the daughters of men. They have children by them. The children are called the Nephilim, mighty men of renown upon the earth. Now, what's typically done in churches today is, <clears throat> well, the sons of God there are just people, you know, the line of Seth or somebody else or their kings and there's no, nothing supernatural going on here, and it's just kind of weird anyway. 
like, like how would we have a you know, supernatural rebellion here and cohabitation and the giants and all that stuff? That's just too weird. So that can't be, it can't be what the writers intended because it offends us. And so let's just sort of get rid of that. And that's what's done. Now, there are a lot of problems with that. It means the daughters of men are the, are the evil line and the men aren't evil. You know, the women are evil, but the men aren't. That's one problem. <clears throat> if you're going to go down that road. But here's the bigger problem in Genesis 6. Peter and Jude disagree. Peter, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, the ungodly. And then he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. He realized this is a chronology. Genesis 6, 4, 1 through 4, then the flood, then Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels that sinned, plural. It's not referring to Satan because it's plural. There is no other candidate for what Peter's talking about. You say, well, what about a third of the angels, you know, rebelling with Satan? There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says that. Not one. The only time you ever get the word third and angel in the same verse is the last book of the Bible, Revelation 12, where it refers to war breaking out in heaven at the birth of the Messiah, which is a long time after the flood. Peter and Jude with him, Jude basically says the same thing, describes a supernatural rebellion before the flood, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the offenders of which were cast into hell and imprisoned there in chains of gloomy darkness. Now, do you notice something already? Where do they get this chains of gloomy darkness business? Because if I remember Genesis 6, let's just go there. Man began to multiply in the face of the land. Daughters were born of them. Sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were attractive, took them wives. The Lord said, hey, my spirit's not going to abide man forever. His flesh is going to give him 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And you keep going. Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Lord regretted what he did. He goes to Noah, and then we get the flood. Where, where's, where are the chains of gloomy darkness? They're not there. And that tells us that Peter and Jude are getting that idea, that material, from somewhere else. They're drawing on material not in the Old Testament, but they're drawing on some other piece of literature or a tradition, a wider tradition, about Genesis 6. Peter and Jude are drawing directly, actually, on ancient Jewish books like First Enoch, Jubilees, and the Book of Giants, all from the Second Temple period, and they're all part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Peter and Jude are reading Jewish books essentially commentary on the Old Testament on this episode of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. 
and they bring some of that material into their own writings in the New Testament. That's where they get it. Newsflash. New Testament writers, biblical writers, read books. <laughs> I mean, we have this weird mythical idea that the Bible guys, they never read anything. They just were kind of like making breakfast one day and then they got zapped and they went into a trance and then they, and they woke up and there's a scroll in front of them and it's like, man, I can't wait to read that. I can't wait to read what I just wrote. I wasn't aware that I wrote it because my brain was disengaged. I was getting downloaded. Okay, the Bible, some of you will get this reference. The Bible is not a channeled book. It is not the book of Arantia. Okay, the Bible is a book produced by people whom God providentially prepared for the task. That's what it is. And they read books, they are informed by their environment, their culture, stuff they read, and God knows all of that's going on. He's preparing them from the time they're born up until the moment when he prompts them to produce something for posterity that becomes part of that thing we call the Bible. It's not just downloaded like their brains were not engaged. You know, we, we really have a deeply flawed conception of inspiration if you think that the Bible is a channeled book. It makes you very vulnerable to criticism and it makes the Bible vulnerable to criticism in all sorts of ways. Again, this is one of those, it'll take me five minutes to destroy your view of the Bible by using the Bible and using the presumption of how you think you got it. It's not hard. It happens in university classrooms every week, okay? It's not hard to do. And in this case, Peter and Jude read books. And this material that they're reading, here's the neat part. They providentially read material that actually preserved the original context for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Because Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is there for a reason. It's not that, again, man, I'm four verses short. You know, I got, a, I got a verse count here. You know, what should I stick in here? Let's like give them a really weird thing. You know, I don't play with their minds a little bit. No, there's a, there's a point to why the verses are there. But the context is lost on us. The Old Testament writer assumes his readers will, will sort of pick up what he's laying down and some of them did because they write about it later and Peter and Jude use those works and they actually recover the original context. Since the 19th century, we've known that Mesopotamian flood stories are very similar to the Bible's flood stories. If you went to college, I can guarantee if you took a religion class, you heard this because people love to use this as a wedge between you and your idea that the Bible's different than other literature. Okay, this is sort of a favorite trajectory. Similarities with other, with other documents. This has been well known since the 19th century. The biblical story records an event, but it also does theology. The flood story isn't, just, isn't designed just to tell you there was a flood. The flood story is actually making a theological point, and that's actually what's happening in the first four, really the first five verses of the account. The writer is shooting at something. And what he's shooting at is Mesopotamian religion. 
he's shooting at some other gods when he does it. But again, that's a context that lost to us. It wasn't lost to Peter and Jude or the, the writers of that other literature. So again, books like Enoch preserve this. Here, here's, to, to get us into this subject, I like to, to do it this way. We just read Genesis 6, 1 through 4, this weird sons of God stuff that Peter and Jude take at face value, okay? It's just weird, all right? And if it's weird, it must be important, and it is. But look at verse 5. Like, what does this have to do with the first four verses? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, wait a minute, I thought the sons of God were the bad guys. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, how do you go from the sons of God violating the, the boundary between heaven and earth? You know, how do you go from a supernatural rebellion to every, all the people being wicked all the time? What's going on here? How do you go from one to the other? If you knew the backstory, you wouldn't ask the question. So we're going to go into the backstory. You know, you have the Second Temple writers who are acquainted with that. And in Second Temple Judaism, again, the Judaism that is from when the Second Temple was built all the way to the first century in Jesus' day, they believed that the events here in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was responsible for the proliferation of human depravity. They believed that there was a connection between the first four verses and verse five because they knew the backstory. Now, the backstory, again, in verses like Enoch, will, or passages like Enoch, will talk about the fall of the sons of God. They're called watchers in Enoch's language. And, you know, Book of Daniel uses that term too. We just read that, you know, a little while ago. They have the watchers descend either to or from Mount Hermon, which if you've ever been to Israel, you've probably seen Mount Hermon. You can't miss it. It's the tallest peak there is in that area. It's usually snow-capped. We're going to talk about Mount Hermon when we get to Jesus and cosmic geography because Jesus visits there, and he has a reason for doing it, and he has things to say when he's there. That again, if you know the backstory, you know why he goes there. Okay? He has a purpose. It's, it's cosmic turf. It, it has an evil, a deeply evil association. So the watchers in the Enoch version, they transgress with women and they teach humanity to destroy themselves. If we, if we read the book of Enoch here, we would read something that sounds really close to Genesis 6, but it ends, the story ends with, and when they came down, you know, to mingle with humans, they taught them skills and technologies for warfare, like how to, how to make swords and knives and spears, you know, for warfare, and the art of warfare. They taught them all about plants and herbs to intoxicate themselves, drugs, okay, to produce altered states. They taught them astrology. They taught them arts of seduction to proliferate immorality. They taught them all these things. And again, Enoch's, because he's Jewish, you know, he's like, this is, this is terrible. What they taught humans accelerated depravity. It broke up homes. It resulted in bloodshed. It turned their hearts to idolatry, 
you know, through producing these altered states and visiting the spiritual realms and all this kind of stuff. You know, there, there's a whole list of sins in the Old Testament that you can put under those four categories. The, these rebels are specifically blamed for kickstarting human self-destruction, accelerating it, giving humans more opportunity and more skill in destroying themselves. Now you can just do it more efficiently. We'll teach you how. Again, here's your list. In Mesopotamian thought, though, there's a story that, that is the backstory to all this. It's a story of, of a group of divine beings called the Apkalu. Now, right away, you have, to, you have to think like a Mesopotamian and think like an Israelite. Israelites are your, you know, your biblical crowd, followers of Yahweh, at least ostensibly. And the, Mes the Mesopotamians are followers of you know, any number of gods. Marduk is the big one, you know, when this gets written. He's the lead deity. So you've got Israel, Mesopotamia, you know, good and evil, all that stuff going on. Well, the Mesopotamian story of the flood includes the idea of supernatural beings coming to earth and cohabitation. But in their version, it's a good thing. This is why Babylon is known for its immorality, certainly its idolatry, for its dark arts. Okay, they were an empire. But those are good things because we're Babylon and we're great. There's no one like us. We are the top dog of civilization. And what the Babylonians wanted people to know is the reason we're so wonderful and so awesome and so unbeatable is because the gods helped us create Babylon. They give the gods credit. And in the Apkalu story, the Apkalu are thought of as culture heroes by the Mesopotamians, the great civilizers of their civilization, the ones who taught the Babylonians all sorts of things to build their power. So they're heroes, they're good guys. These seven sages, there are seven of them, were created by other gods in the abyss. That ought to ring a bell. Okay, they're created in the abyss. They, one of their jobs was to ensure the correct functioning of heaven and earth. They had great power, great knowledge, and they're gonna teach humans things ostensibly to create civilization. But again, the Jews look at this and they go, this is horrible. We shouldn't have random bloodshed. We shouldn't have immorality. We shouldn't be worshiping other gods. We shouldn't be doing any of this garbage. But if you're a Babylonian, you're like, yeah, sign me up for that. The wisdom taught by the Apkalu to the Babylonians corresponds precisely to the forbidden knowledge that you'll see listed in Enoch. That's not a coincidence. Again, negative view, positive view. The Apkalu, they also, archeologists have discovered little figurines because the Apkalu, again, they're viewed as good guys. They're not viewed as sinister demonic figures by the Babylonians, they would make figures of the Apkalu and bury them in foundations of buildings to protect the building, you know, from whatever the Babylonians didn't like. And their name for those sculptures was Matsare in Akkadian. It means watchers. 
That's not a coincidence. Again, that's Enoch's term for the sons of God who fell before the flood. It's not a coincidence. He's getting it from Babylonian material. The higher gods in the Babylonian story one day is the Apkala are kind of mid-level mid deities. You know, they have important jobs, but they're not the ones who, who make the decisions. They're not the ones who call the shots. They just do stuff. They're real smart and do stuff. So the higher gods decide, you know, we're kind of sick of humans. You know, you read Enuma Elish or the Gilgamesh epic or something like that, you're gonna get this story. You know, we're kind of sick of, of humans. They make a lot of noise. You know, they, they just, you know, it, this was just a bad idea. So, you know what, we're gonna get rid of them. We're gonna send a flood and wipe them out. And then the gods, you know, high five each other and ah, great idea, you know what? Let's just get rid of them. Well, the Apkalu hear this and they're like, you gotta be kidding. I mean, we've invested a lot of time in these people. You know, we've taught them all sorts of things. How in the world, I mean, all that work is gonna be lost if we just, you know, if, if they just get destroyed. So they decide, well, okay, we can think of a way to sort of transmit our knowledge to human survivors of the flood, and then we can sort of start up again. All, our work will not be lost. Now, the Era Epic, which is a Mesopotamian text, is a key source for this. It lists seven pre-flood kings, each of them accompanied by an assisting Apkalu. So the king said, I owe my success to this deity, and then they, you know, they list them out in a cuneiform tablet. Each king is assisted by a specific Apkalu, and they're all divine beings. But after the flood, there are texts that mention four of them, and they're no longer completely divine. They're of divine descent, but they're also described as partly human. Does this sound familiar? Okay, the Giborim, the Nephilim, okay. They're also described as other ways. They're two-thirds Apkalu is one description. That's the description given to Gilgamesh, who is called in one cylinder seal, the Lord of the Apkalu, and Gilgamesh is a giant in Mesopotamian tradition. Does that sound familiar? Divine beings, cohabitation, offspring that's mixed, they're giants, and you know, they're, they're just bad dudes. Okay, the Babylonians think, well, this is great, good idea. You know, you, you save civilization here. In the Israelite version in Genesis 6, it's like, this is awful. Because what do the Nephilim and their succeeding generations do? Numbers 13, 32, 33. When Joshua, along with 11 others, you know, Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies, are sent into the land, they come back in Numbers 13, 32, and 33 and say what? What do the spies say? This place is awesome. Like, it's everything we heard it was gonna be. And the people are like, yeah. And, and, the, and the 10 of the spies go, no. <laughs> because, because there's one other detail here. The place is littered with Anakim, who are descended from the Nephilim, great and tall, essentially, we're gonna get our butts kicked. 
Okay, we do not stand a chance. And Joshua and Caleb are like, don't you remember like the Red Sea? Like, hello? But 10 of them say, we're out of here. And so God says, because you don't believe, you're gonna wander in the wilderness now for 40 years until this generation dies out. Now, getting a little ahead of myself for the next session. After 40 years, remember what God does? See, the conquest fails when they see the Anakim, the giants. And Deuteronomy 2 and 3 says the Anakim are Rephaim. Again, all these different giant clan names. God takes them up the other side of Jordan and they pass through Ammon and Moab and, and God tells you know, Joshua, Moses and Joshua in Deuteronomy, now, go up, go through Ammon and Moab, but don't bother those people because the descendants of Esau have already eliminated the giant clan, clans there, the Zamzumim, the, Z the Zuzim, and the Amim. So you don't have any business there. Don't bother them. I'm going to send you to Bashan where the last of the Rephaim live. God intentionally takes them back to confront the same people they ran away from. They have to conquer Bashan, the vestiges of the giant clans in Bashan, before God allows them to cross over and then do the same thing in Canaan. He brings them full circle. You're not getting out of this deal because th this is, these are the elements of the population in the, in the conquest narrative. These must be eliminated because they are spawn of rival gods. They want to seduce you to idolatry. They want to destroy you because you're my people. You say, well, how in the world did we get into that situation? Like where all these nations have other gods. I mean, how did we even get there to begin with? Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. That's Babel. But in Jewish tradition, here's where demons come from, the demons of the gospels, who are not the principalities and powers. We'll see that in a moment too. In Jewish tradition, if you asked, where do the demons come from? This is it. Because when the Rephaim die, where do we see them in the Old Testament? Sheol. A demon is the disembodied spirit of one of these guys. That was the belief in Judaism. And again, you can read it all through Second Temple Jewish texts. And, and I'm sure that, that maybe there's some of you who have heard that before. But again, this isn't taught in church because you're not encouraged to read the text that Peter and Jude read that wind up you know, getting drawn on for material in the New Testament. You don't read Isaiah 14. You don't read about the Rephaim. You don't read about Sheol. You know, again, this is your biblical worldview. So you've got one rebel who brings death and estrangement to humanity. That's the one you know about. That's the serpent. You've got this crowd who rebel against God. Now God, in, in all traditions, God takes the offenders and assigns them, sends them back to the abyss. In the Mesopotamian story, that's what Marduk does. Marduk says, look, I wanted humanity destroyed. I didn't want you guys interfering. So I'm gonna sentence you to go back to the abyss to never return. Every element of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is accounted for in the Apkalo story, every one. And it's only really been since 2010 that scholars who muck around in cuneiform tablets have assembled the data. 
So by definition, if you have a commentary at home that doesn't include what I just talked about, I'm sorry, but it's obsolete in Genesis 6. It does not take into consideration the primary source text material that is the backdrop for Genesis 6, 1 through 4. That isn't my fault, I'm just pointing it out. Okay, it's, it's just, this is what happens. People discover things and you learn more things. There was a time when the Dead Sea Scrolls that were unknown. 1947, 48, you know, we, we've learned lots through them. It's the same thing over here. Now we understand why Peter and Jude could read Enoch and go, oh, you know, we get it because in, in, in the book of the giants, Gilgamesh is actually mentioned by name as a giant. What a coincidence. There are Jewish people who are serious about the Old Testament and they preserve the backstories, the context of the Old Testament in all sorts of ways, and they write about their discoveries, they write about you know, the, the dots they're connecting, they do exegesis, they do interpretation. This is what Jewish thinkers are doing in this 500-year gap. They're studying the Old Testament, and they have access to lots of material to help them understand it. And New Testament writers like Peter and Jude, they read some of that stuff and they bring it into the New Testament because it helps them make an argument. In Peter and Jude's case, who do they compare? Who are the angels that sin? What are they a foil for? False teachers. Wouldn't it make sense to equate a false teacher with like an Apkalu dude or one of the fallen sons of God because they were believed to lead people astray? Why in the Gospels are demons called unclean spirits? It's because they don't take a bath. Because <laughs> okay, they eat like stuff they shouldn't. No. What are, other than like, you know, like food laws in the Old Testament, what are some other things that make something, either an animal or a person, unclean? Forbidden mixtures. This is why the watchers are called bastard spirits in the Dead Sea Scrolls because that's what they are. And they're unclean spirits. I could cite you sources where, where guys write their dissertation on the phrase unclean spirit. Where does it come from? How is it used? That will make this point. It's just, again, this is what I try to do. I try to give you know, scholarly material, make it decipherable because it, it, is, it is kind of important in terms of the worldview of what we're talking about. You have the lesson to learn from Genesis 6, ultimately, is not about giant stuff. I mean, people love that stuff, but it's really not about giant stuff. It's about understanding that you have supernatural enemies who enjoy your destruction. It's about your living a legacy that is partly your fault but partly one imposed upon you by intelligent evil. Now you can say, well, all those guys are locked up in the abyss, you know, and they are, okay, they are. Demons are at times allowed to get out, like in the gospels and they possess people, they harm individuals. That's not our real problem. Our real problem is the next set, which are different. But the idea that there is intelligent evil out there that seeks your destruction is an important one. Now, when it comes to the biblical story, it's kind of interesting 
Who destroys the, the lineage of the Nephilim in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Okay, Moses and Joshua in the conquest. And then the last, in fact, Joshua winds up his conquest narrative, narrative this way. How does Joshua define success? It's in Joshua uh, 12. Joshua 11, 21, 22, it says, there are no more Anakim in the land, except the ones that escaped to the Philistine cities. <laughs> Where do we find the vestiges of them later on? It's Goliath, he's, he's from one of these cities. Goliath has, you know, some brothers too. It's David's men who take care, and David, of course, of the rest of the line. Isn't it fascinating that Moses, Joshua, and David who are three archetypal figures of the Messiah, wind up destroying the giant clans. That's not a coincidence. Moses, the Messiah is the prophet like unto Moses. Joshua, it's Yeshua. I mean, how clear can that be? Okay, you know, captain of the Lord's host and all that. And of course, David, the man after God's own heart, the messianic archetype. Again, none of this stuff is, is, is coincidence. It's designed to get you to think in a certain way in this case, about evil. The messianic role is telegraphed, you know, somewhat cryptically. Now, again, we don't have time to go into all these things, but you can, you can go to YouTube. God forbid I send you to YouTube. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm on YouTube so many times and don't know how I got there. I just, but if Google, Google my name and like the time of Jesus' birth, there is specific imaging about the timing of Jesus' birth and the times and the seasons that is a direct polemic. It's a theological poke in the eye to the watcher story. There are women in Jesus' genealogies whose lives mimic the circumstances of either sexual rebellion or crime, sexual crimes committed to them. All four of the, of the women in Jesus' genealogy have that. You know, you get Paul's reference in Galatians 3, 19, 20. The law was added because of transgressions, plural. So it's not like Adam and Eve, because they do like one thing. What if the transgressions we're talking about here are the crimes of the watchers. Because Galatians 3 goes into chapter 4 and talks about the timing of Jesus. In the fullness of time, the Son of God was born. You actually, again, if you read Unseen Realm, you're going to get all this, but there are actually Jewish texts that develop that thought. That the law was added to circumscribe or put, the, put halters on, put boundaries around human self-destruction that was proliferated as a result of what happened here before the flood. The law is added to help humans slow down in their self-destruction, is the point. Again, I'm not inventing any of these ideas. This is all ancient material that provides context for what Paul's saying and other writers. You know, I know Stovall just preached, a, or recently preached a message on 1 Peter 3. Why does Peter mix the fall, or not the fall, but the flood, the, the angels that sinned, the spirits in prison, Noah, the ark, and the resurrection? I mean, like, what, what is he on? 
I mean, what, what is this guy thinking of? Did he just say, I need a chapter to write, I'm gonna take all these things, toss them in the blender and hit the switch, and then we'll just write, write something. No, all of those things are related in his mind because of this whole issue. The resurrection deals with depravity because you have a resurrection and ascension and then the spirit comes to indwell people to help them not destroy themselves. Again, all these things are connected. The big one in many ways is the last one here, the third rebellion. This is the Sunday school story we all know, but we never see. Because again, we're cut off from some material. We all know the story of Babel, Genesis 11, 1, 9. What we don't know is this one. When the Most High, again, that's not a brain teaser. We know who that is. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, and when he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Wait a minute. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God? But the Lord's portion, but Yahweh's portion, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Okay, when, were the, when was humanity divided into nations? That would be Babel. So when God did that, when he punished humanity because he wanted them to overspread the earth, God repeats the Edenic mandate after the flood, to Noah and his sons, and it's from his sons that all the nations in Genesis 10, you know, derive from in some way. Instead of overspreading the earth though, they congregated a place called Babel and they built a tower, you know, to make themselves a great name. So God says, okay, this is like the opposite of what I asked you to do. So we've, let, me, let me get this straight, God says. We had a fallen Eden. You got expelled from that, and that meant death and estrangement from, from me, your father and your creator. Then we unfortunately had another supernatural rebellion to deal with, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. The result of that was the proliferation of evil and wickedness and depravity among the human population that was so great that I looked down and I saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5. So I sent a flood, but we saved a remnant out of the flood. And I gave them 120 years to repent, but basically nobody did. But now, you know, when you guys get out of the ark and, and, and you have kids, I, I come, I show up and I repeat the Edenic mandate because there is no plan B. We're sticking with plan A here. I want a family. I want you and my family. I want to return to earth and I want the earth to become Eden. But it has to start right here. Okay, you, you, you gotta start with the original job. You've got to be loyal to me. Obey. You're not going to earn your salvation. If you believe that I am the Most High, that I am your Creator, I am your Father, you believe that I want the things that, that you want, I want to give them to you, 
If you believe that, that I am who I say I am, let's get with the plan here. Be my partner. Be my child, be my partner. And so what does humanity do? Now, we'd like to build a tower. You know, be because, because if we build a tower, then like we're gonna become famous. So now it's a little more than that because everybody agrees, biblical scholars agree that the tower they built is, was a ziggurat. If you know a little bit about ziggurats, it helps. Ziggurats were part of temple complexes in ancient Mesopotamia. You built a ziggurat to connect heaven and earth, and you would meet at that place to offer sacrifice and barter with the god or the gods. A ziggurat, part of a temple complex, was something you built to bring the deity to you. God's like, that's really not the idea. Okay, I don't come at your beck and call. Okay, the, the God of Israel will not be tamed. This is what the thinking was about building, you know, these temple complexes. And God says, okay, here we are again. You don't want to be loyal to me. You don't want me to be your God. You don't want these things. I'm going to give you what you apparently are asking for. I'm going to give you a divorce. I'm going to disinherit you. I'm gonna cut you off from me. I'm gonna disperse you and divide you up geographically, and I'm going to assign each of you, each of the nations, to one of the sons of God. And you know, they're gonna get assigned to you too. And what I want them to do, again, this is wider in the Old Testament, what I want them to do is I want them to essentially be placeholders. I still love humanity. I don't want humanity enslaved and destroyed and corrupted and basically ground into dust. And I certainly don't want humans to worship the other gods because I'm their maker. So what I want is I want the nations ruled justly according to you know, my character and my principles, but I'm done with you. I'm gonna judge your wickedness and we're gonna see how that goes. In the meantime, verse 9, here's what we're going to do. There is no plan B. So what I'm going to do, if you're not willing to be loyal to me, is I'm going to create more humans. I'm going to take one guy from Ur, his name is Abram, and his wife is Sarah, and they're perfect because they can't have kids. They're perfect because I'm gonna supernaturally enable them to have a child so that everybody knows this nation, their descendants exist because of my power. That's what we're gonna do. So, this is, this is what he does. What happens in the biblical storyline right after Babel? Genesis 12, what is it? It's the covenant with Abram. So God is still interested in the nations because when he makes a covenant with Abram and he promises him a seed, he says, it's gonna be through your seed that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
And you know, Paul later on picks up on this idea and he talks about, well, the, the seed was actually like one seed, it was Jesus, and of course he has, goes all the way back through Abraham and you know, the genealogies and all that stuff. And it's gonna be the Messiah who is going to reunite the earth, reunite the nations. This is the plan. So God abandons them. Now what this leads to if you, again, know, if you want good bedtime reading, you can read my article about Deuteronomy 32.8. Now, most of your Bibles will say sons of Israel. He divided them up according to the number of the sons of Israel or the children of Israel. The Dead Sea Scrolls say sons of God. Here I made you a nice little picture of the Dead Sea Scroll. If you read Hebrew, it's B'nai Elohim, sons of God. And I, I talk about the scroll in that article. But you don't need to be a textual critic. Think about the story. The nations are divided at Babel, and they're divided up according to the sons of Israel. Israel didn't exist yet. They're only going to exist after Babel. So it makes no sense to divide the nations up according to the number of the sons of Israel, because Israel, what, what's that? They don't even exist. Again, the, the correct reading is sons of God, like the Dead Sea Scrolls have. It's the oldest text we have, and so... We, we should go with it. ESV goes with it, NLT, NRSV. I mean, some of your mainline translations have incorporated the Dead Sea Scrolls into that passage, and they should, because it makes a lot of sense. Now, ultimately what happens here, let's go back to Psalm 82. You know, Israel, the, the plan is that God has abandoned the nations, and Israel is supposed to be his family, and his family is supposed to be, think of how, is, how Israel's described in the Old Testament, a kingdom of priests, there's one. What do priests do? They, they're mediators between God and men. Yeah, sure. Don't lose your thought. Okay. Just because so many people don't know, I want them to understand, when you're saying in the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. you're talking about the biblical text. The biblical wanna, text. When he says Dead yeah. Sea Scrolls, he's talking about the Bible that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that is the oldest text that we this have. Is, this that's is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 preserved in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's a good point. The, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, two categories, biblical and non-biblical. Biblical scrolls are copies of the Hebrew Bible. Non-biblical stuff is stuff that's not the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> so it's real easy to remember. But if you go to Psalm 82, again, Israel was supposed to be the mediator between God, the true God, and all these other nations. See, the, what happens at Babel is the Old Testament explanation for why the other nations have other gods, where pantheons come from. Because the sons of God who are given charge over the nations don't do a good job. Here's what they do. We, we read it earlier today in Psalm 82. God is judging the gods in his counsel. How long will you judge unjustly? Show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. I mean, you're not doing all this stuff. And the result is, look at what's in, you know, your people have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. The whole foundations of the earth are shaken. Okay, what I wanted was for you to rule justly because I still love humanity, and I want to use my new people, Israel, to be a conduit of truth to them 
from me to them and bring them back into the family. But, but what you're doing is resulting in chaos throughout the whole earth. The psalm ends with the psalmist saying, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalmist wants this to end. He wants the chaos of the nations taken care of. The reason I have this highlighted, again, we, we can't go into this either, but in the, if you know what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The word here for arise in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is the word for resurrection. And it, it happens three or four times where the resurrection is associated with the reclaiming of the nations. This is just one of several passages. And Paul knows this. He knows it really well. Because five or six times, Paul, when he talks about the resurrection, he doesn't talk about being his ideal weight. He doesn't talk about getting his hair back, getting better eyesight. Or he, when he, as soon as he thinks of the resurrection, he thinks about the conquest of the rulers, of the powers, the principalities. He does it half a dozen different places. He thinks of one and goes to the other. Now, again, this is the way it was supposed to work, but it doesn't work this way. And what this is, this is the root, and we'll cover this in the last five minutes here. This whole idea of God scattering the nations, assigning them to other gods, and those gods become corrupt. They destroy their nations. They turn the hearts of their people to worship them. They turn the hearts of people to idolatry. It's a mess. It's the Old Testament explanation for after the flood, everybody knew who the true God was. After Babel, things just really go downhill. Okay. It turns into the system that, that, that we sort of know about the ancient world. You know, you, you, could go to, you could go to Plato and find the same worldview. You can go to Greco-Roman writers. The pagan world believed the same thing, that they worship the gods they do and their neighbors worship some other god because that's how the Most High wanted it. You'll actually find that in, in non-biblical pagan texts. Again, Paul, when, when Paul goes to a pagan city, he knows that they share the same worldview. That, that's, it's a platform for the gospel. But before we get there, that, that's going to be the subject of the next session. This is the foundation for what we call spiritual warfare and cosmic geography. Daniel 10, the prince of Persia, prince of Greece, where do we get this idea of supernatural princes over nations? Deuteronomy 32, the Babel story. That's where it begins. 1 Samuel 5, this is one of my favorites because it's one of the most obscure, but it's funny. Remember the story when the Philistines go to war with the Israelites and they capture the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, so what do they do? They take the Ark of the Covenant back to the Temple of Dagon, right? And, and they set it up in the Temple of Dagon. And again, this is a familiar Sunday school story that we like to tell kids, again, because it's funny. I'll have to go to, let me just flip over and go to 1 Samuel 5, because there's a line in it that we all miss. So they, they take the Ark over to Dagon's Temple. Might help if I put the chapter in. And here's the story. They took Dagon, put, him, you know, put the ark in front of Dagon. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, 
Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they, when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen down, you know, face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And this time, if I can find my mouse here, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now, that's the story we tell. Because it's funny, Dagon is reduced to a stump. And it, granted, okay, it's comical. But we miss the next verse. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Where they found Dagon defeated, they don't walk on it because now that ground is under dominion of Yahweh. In other words, can you, can you imagine? I mean, this must have been like some pirouette because you, you gotta go into Dagon's house to do stuff. And so like, well, we just gotta kind of step around that, you know, like you know, coordinate off or whatever, because they're not taking any chances. They're not taking any chances. It is now ground that belongs to Yahweh. See, the nations around Israel are under dominion of fallen gods. Israel is Yahweh's portion. And Yahweh, when he, when he does things like this and conquers their deities, they get it. 1 Samuel 26, when David gets driven out of Judah, you know, he, if, we, if we click through that, he has this lament, and he's, he's basically shedding tears over well, good grief, you know, I have to leave Judah and I gotta go pretend I'm a crazy man over in Philistine territory, you know, because Saul hates me, they hate me, you know, how am I gonna stay alive? And he, he laments that, you know, how can I worship the Lord? How can I pray? Because I'm no longer in Judah. It's not a denial of God's omnipresence. That's the way a modern would think about it. He's thinking, for me to be rightly related to God, I have to be in his land. I have to be in his space, sacred space. Second Kings 5, my, probably my favorite example, this is Naaman the leper. Again, how many times have we heard this in Sunday school? So Naaman has leprosy, and he's got a little slave girl living in his house that they captured from Israel. And... I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, she's doing whatever task she's doing, and here comes Naaman, the captain of Syria. He's a big dude, and he's whining about his leprosy. I mean, I'd whine, too, if I had leprosy. And the little slave girl says, well, why don't you just go down and see Elisha the prophet? Like, he'll take care of that. And he's like, what? Sure, just, you know, go down and visit Elisha. So he takes a bunch of his men, and he goes to Elisha in Israel. He gets to Elisha's house, and the prophet won't even come out to talk to him. He says, yeah, I know, I know he's here. I know who he is. Just tell him to go dip in the Jordan seven times. He'll be okay. So Naaman's like, this is disrespectful. And it doesn't even, like, know who I am. And he gets all in a huff, you know, we're just going to go back home, you know. And again, his servants say, well, again, Mike's paraphrase. Well, if he'd have told you to do something crazy, you probably would have done it. Oh, yeah, you know, but the Jordan is like, you know, we got better rivers back home. You know, what, what is this thing? It's like a little sewer or something, you know. And, and his men say, well, what's the harm? 
just try it. So he says, okay, I'll try it and then we'll go home. So he dips himself seven times in Jordan. What happens? You know the story. He's healed. So he, he, he can't believe it. You know, he's, he's thrilled. He goes back to Elisha's house, and this time Elisha comes out to talk to him. And, you know, Naaman's like, you know, thank you. I can't believe it. You know, can I give you something? Can I pay you something? I mean, this is just amazing. And Elisha's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing any of that. And so Naaman says, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods. And he says, from this point forward, I will not sacrifice to any other. And then what does he ask Elisha for? Anyone remember? This is the part of the story we, we skip over. He asks him for dirt. He said, would it be okay if I fill the you know, bags of, you know, with dirt and as much as my mule train can carry, take it back, because I'm an important guy. I gotta go home to Syria, and part of my job is I have to go into the temple of Ramon with the king, and the king's kind of old, and when the king bends over, I gotta do this, you know. And so, but I want, you know, he wants God to know, and he wants Elisha to know that I'm not worshiping Ramon. Now, he probably used the dirt to spread out at his house somewhere to offer sacrifice on what? cosmic geography, on, on holy ground, land under dominion of, of the God he knew was real. I mean, you know, maybe he took some with him in the temple of Ramon, like, you know, put a little bag, put some in my pockets, you know. I mean, who knows? But he wants dirt. I mean, you, you can't understand the, the impact of that whole scene without Deuteronomy 32. This is Yahweh's portion. He has dominion over this land. We are attached to him and his land. Everything else is hostile. It's under dominion of something else. Deuteronomy 32 frames the entire rest of the Bible. Because from this point on, it's Israel against the nations, and it's Yahweh against the gods. That's the whole story right there in a nutshell. It frames the entirety of the Old Testament. And since this is where we get the Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, all this stuff, okay, that gets picked up in the New Testament, both in the life of Jesus and in what Paul says and in our ultimate destiny, believe it or not. All those things bleed back into what we just talked about. Find your seats as quickly as you can. And our, our last session, again, not to insult your intelligence because you can read uh, behind me, is the supernatural worldview of the Bible specifically focused on the work of Jesus in the New Testament. You know, it's the whole New Testament. So again, bird's eye view, we're just picking our spots here. Uh, again, just to give you a feel for the flavoring. So to this point, if, you know, just to summarize things, We've talked about God's original desire to have a human family coexisting with his supernatural family. 
Heaven comes to earth, we have Eden, we have the creation of humankind as God's imagers, his proxies, his stand-ins, again, whatever vocabulary helps. They are his children, they are fit for sacred space, they are tasked with making the rest of the world like Eden, to spread the goodness of God, to spread life as God wants it lived, everywhere on the globe. That's destroyed with the fall, the first of three rebellions. The fall brings upon humanity a death problem and a separation from God. That rebellious path continues. We have the precursor event to the flood, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which produces a number of bad results. In immediate Old Testament history, we have a lethal threat to the people of God, Israel, in the form of the Nephilim and their descendants. Moses, Joshua, and David take care of that problem, but what they cannot address is the fact that fallen sons of God, the watchers against supernatural rebels, teach, deceive, misdirect, blind human beings to their own self-destruction. They accelerate depravity. There are, you know, there's an, an animus there. Humans are essentially taught to more efficiently destroy their own lives and the lives of those around them. Their hearts are turned to idolatry. God judges that with the flood. He consigns the rebellious supernatural beings to the pit, to the abyss, chains of gloomy darkness in the language of Peter and Jude. By the way, I think Revelation 9 describes the release of the watchers as a precursor to the end of days, which ultimately is a transition to, you know, the day of the Lord and the future age, the age to come. But we've got a serious problem there. And then we have the Babel problem where the nations are divorced from God they are assigned, allotted is the biblical word, to the sons of God who corrupt them and in turn show their own corruption by turning the hearts of, of everyone to idolatry, soliciting worship from humans instead of directing them back to the true God and ruling them according to the moral character of the true God. They turn their populations into their slaves and destroy them. This is why the psalmist cries out for an end to this situation. So humanity is fragmented. It is in a maelstrom of depravity. It is separated from the true God and the knowledge of the true God. It's just one big mess. It's one big chaotic mess. And so the expectation is that the seed of Abraham, the seed, the Messiah, is going to show up and fix this all three of these, all, all of these conditions. And again, we, we can't drill down into all these things, but I mentioned there are certain theological signals to the birth and the genealogy of Jesus that are aimed at the Watcher story. We can't get into that now. We know about the resurrection, the, the, the cross event, the cross, the death of Jesus and the resurrection. We know that that takes care of the death problem because resurrection, again, he is the first fruits 
of the resurrection and we will inherit the resurrection. We will be raised with him at the last day to eternal life. Again, we, we know those points of the theology. So we know how the work of Jesus cures the death problem. It brings the believer back into the family of God. But I want to focus here on a few things in the Gospels and in the epistles and ultimately in the book of Revelation that sort of touch on the other two things. The problem of depravity, the problem of cosmic geography especially. There are things in the New Testament that what we just described in the last hour, little seeds of that, little breadcrumbs of those things are seeded throughout the New Testament. And the problem is our ability to detect them because we don't quite know what we're looking at because we have not spent enough time in our Old Testament understanding it in its own context to be able to see the breadcrumb trails, but they are there. Uh, my book, Reversing Hermon, drills down specifically on the Genesis 6 story. How does that story bleed into the New Testament and specifically the mission of Jesus? Again, we'll, we'll say a little bit about that here, but I want to focus on cosmic geography because that's, I think, there's an important aspect of that that's really tied into our destiny that really matters, and I think especially for our gathering today. So you're only going to get a little, a little taste of what's lurking in your Bible, <laughs> um, what will jump out at you if you're aware. <laughs> um, and it's, it's good stuff, really, it is. So the ministry of Jesus, you know, Jesus' first coming, the first advent, he is going to inaugurate the kingdom, means he's going to kickstart the kingdom of God, the rule of God on earth once more. And he's also going to make a mockery in his own special way of the cosmic powers. So he does this in different ways, and just again, just a smattering here. It's no coincidence that the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom, when, when Jesus begins his ministry, he starts talking about the kingdom. I mean, John had done this as a precursor as well. But he starts saying things like the kingdom of God is present, the kingdom of God is among you, you know, so on and so forth. When he starts talking about the kingdom, when he inaugurates his ministry, he also, to demonstrate his authority, he couples those announcements with specific episodes of the expulsion of demons. If you look in your New Testament, you will see when the kingdom gets talked about, you have these sorts of events. That is not a coincidence. It's intentional, it's deliberate. And I think one of the more interesting ones is here in Matthew 8. We're probably gonna go a little past three o'clock, but Oh well, just drag me away. <laughs> I've, I've been good to this point. <laughs> okay, Jesus heals two men with demons. When he came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes in, in other synoptics, gospels, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
and then we get the pigs and the swine and all that. What I want to draw your attention to is how the demons address Jesus. Okay, oh son of God. Usually when people address Jesus, they call him son of David in the gospels. It's a consistent pattern. But here the demons somehow know that he's not just the son of David, he's the son of God. If you go over to the same account in Mark, crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? This is legion, so it's still more than one. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In Luke, Luke is gonna use the same language, son of the most high. Now what I want to draw your attention to is isn't it unusual, or doesn't it draw your attention, that when Jesus goes into territory that is under Gentile control, they're raising pigs, okay? That, that's an indication, okay? <laughs> and, you know, historically, this part of, part of the land was under Gentile control in Jesus' day. That when he's among Jews, they refer to him either as Jesus or the Son of God or some pejorative, you know. But when he's in Gentile turf and he confronts supernatural powers, they refer to him as the Son of God and the Son of the Most High. Why should that stand out? Because he is Lord of the Gentile nations as well. Jesus goes into Gentile places and does things to telegraph a simple point. I am not the Messiah of the Jew alone. I have dominion over territory that is under the authority, at least to this point, of other gods. And they know it. They call him son of the most high. Where do we see that language in the Old Testament? The Babel story. Okay, it, it's designed to take your mind back by using that specific phrase, back to the conditions of cosmic geography in the Old Testament. And to telegraph the point that the supernatural beings know who this is. Now, I agree with Paul, and we'll get to Paul in a moment, where Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, verses 6 through 8, said, you know, had the rulers of this world, which is a, a Pauline phrase for supernatural powers, and, and the Gospels use it too, Satan is called the ruler of this world and all that. But Paul says, had the rulers of this world known what the outcome would have been, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, they're not idiots. They're not thinking like, oh, Jesus is here and he's here to die on the cross. And so if we kill him, that's the beginning of the end for us. Let's do that. <laughs> now, they know who he is and they know why he's there. Why else would the son of God show up? Why else would the son of the most high show up? He's here to do this silly Eden thing again. He wants to reclaim the nations. He wants to kickstart Eden again. He wants to bring the nations back into the family. He wants to restore Eden. He wants God to have his way. Well, we're not gonna let that happen. 
So the, the easy solution for them is to kill him, which is exactly what God needs to happen. Okay, now, Jesus knows the plan. He knows the mechanism for this, but they don't. Like Paul says, had they known, they never would have done this. They're not idiots. Also, what Jesus does when he starts talking about the kingdom, the first time he sends out disciples, he sends out 70. Some of your New Testaments will say 72. It doesn't matter because it refers to the same thing. Why 70? He doesn't send out 12. You know, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. No, he sends out 70. Why? 70, if you use the traditional Hebrew text of Genesis 10, the nations involved in the Babel story, if you count them, there's 70 of them. In the Septuagint, there's 72 because the translator divided two. He divided a couple pairs. That's why you get the number difference. But both numbers refer back to the table of nations that were divided at Babel. If you are a literate Jew and you happen to be either on the scene or you read the gospel where Jesus, the son of David, son of the Most High, starts talking about the kingdom and sends out 70 disciples who have authority over demons, you know what's going on. You know what this signals. He is here to take back the nations. I am not the God and the Messiah of the Jew alone. I am Lord of every last inch of turf here. And this is a symbolic gesture to make that point. It's a cosmic geographical act to those who have Babel ringing in their heads. You know, this, is, this coincides with Satan, quote, falling like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. You also get the dragon cast down in Revelation 12, which again, if you read the passage, and I already referenced it, refers to the first coming of the Messiah. The first coming of the Messiah results in some sort of casting down of the devil. What is that? What might that mean? Okay, again, this isn't original to me, but I think this is the view that makes the most sense, given all the other things we've talked about and a lot of the things we haven't talked about today. The serpent figure, the original rebel that we know as Satan, was cast down in Eden to the underworld, to, to, the, to the, the earth. And, and in, in Israelite cosmology, the underworld is in the earth. So he's cast out of heaven to the earth. He becomes Lord of the dead. So it can't refer to that because this is something different that is associated with the announcement of the kingdom. Okay, my view is that what this means is that Satan is expelled from the presence of God or the the role of the accuser who brings charge against people because he owns them. Another way of saying it, if Satan has rightful ownership of every human life because everything dies, one of his roles that's described elsewhere in scripture is to accuse the brethren. If you, you know, look at, at this role, the terminology of the accuser is drawn from different passages. You know, Job 1 and 2 is probably the most familiar, just for the idea of accusation. 
But he lays claim to every human being on the planet. When the kingdom of God is begun and the king announces it, and the king is going to give his life to make the kingdom of God a reality, that's over and done with. In what way? Here's the point. Anyone who's a member of Jesus' kingdom is no longer under the authority of the Lord of the dead because of the resurrection. So if you are a member of that kingdom, this dude over here has nothing to say. He no longer owns you. Your destiny is no longer with him. He is a prosecutor without a case. Okay, that's what he is. And again, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is when these things happen, when they're said in the gospels, they have a context that drifts back into the Old Testament you know, that needs to be you know, noodled a little bit when it gets to that. Now I've alluded to this one. Here's a map. This is God's leading of Moses and Joshua. When they, I'll try to get out of my own way here. When they are done with the 40 years of wandering, as I mentioned before, God directs Moses and Joshua to go up the other side of Jordan, the eastern side, if you're looking at the map from your direction. It's not Canaan proper, it's the other side. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, let's just take a look at it, even though I alluded to this before. Deuteronomy 2 and 3, he says, you know, the, the writer says, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory, the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I've already given it to the sons of Lot, who are, again, peripherally related to Abraham. I've already given it to the sons of Lot. It's also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But, let me click in there and find my mouse. But the Lord destroyed them. The Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled them in their place, as he did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them and dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day, as he did for the Avim who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, you know, who came from Kaftor. These are all also roots of the Philistines. And he goes down through the list and he says, look, on the other side of Jordan, you don't molest the people of Moab and Ammon because I've already either given it to descendants of Abraham and there's no giant problem there. Already took care of that. Descendants of Esau, you know, cleared them out. The Ammonite, you know, we, we don't have a problem there. What we do have a problem with is Bashan. The region up here to the north at the top of the map, Bashan. Let's get a better look at it. This is the region of Bashan. You see the Sea of Galilee right here. Bashan is, the, again, the territorial name. Ashtaroth and Edrai are two significant cities. Let me see if I have, yeah, I have this note here. Just a few notes about the region of Bashan. In Canaanite, it was known as Bathon, T-H, which is a word for serpent. 
that's a little creepy. I mean, Israelites are going to be a little creeped out by that. Ashtaroth and Edrai in Canaanite, in Ugaritic, that's a Canaanite language or a Northwest Semitic language, those two cities are mentioned by name and they are described as gateways to the netherworld. They freaked even the pagans out, okay? So it's like, we just don't, you know, like we don't really want to go there. It's just, Bashan is kind of creepy to begin with and we don't want to hang out at these places because these are gateways to the netherworld, to the underworld. In Old Testament times, at the, at the top of what we'll see in a moment, at the, the, the top of Bashan, the region there, there's a mountain, it's Mount Hermon. We'll come back to that point. But at the foot of Mount Hermon was built a temple to Baal. Baal is referred to as the Lord of the underworld in Canaanite literature. He's Lord of the dead. Baal Zabul. Baal in the Gospels. Baal is Ugaritic for Prince Baal. Baal is Baal, Zabul is the word for prince, the Lord of the dead. This is why Baal is a Satan figure, okay, in a lot of this, this material. Prince Baal. I mean, so this read, this is not where you'd go like for R&R, &R. okay? <laughs> Where, where, where do we want to go for vacation this year? Oh, Dad, I've got a great idea. Let's go to Bashan. No, it, really, it's just, you know, think of something else. <laughs> so here we are, a little bit more of a blow-up. You've got Bashan, Sea of Galilee here in Jesus' day. Just fix that location in your mind. You've got Ashtaroth and Edrai nearby. There again, Sea of Galilee, a little bit north. This is going to be actually adjacent to where the Temple of Baal was erected in Old Testament days, is Caesarea Philippi, in the, also known in Jesus' day as Banias or Panias with a P. What happens at Caesarea Philippi? It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, okay, in the region of Bashan. This is like, this is like ground zero for just awful, evil, chaotic, nasty stuff. What happens at Caesarea Philippi? This is the place that Jesus goes with his disciples and they're at, you know, there, there they are. Caesarea Philippi, you've got the, the grotto of Pan, Pan, Banyas, Bashan, all this stuff, the gates of hell. And this is the place where Jesus has this conversation with his disciples where he says, who do people, who do men say that I am? And the disciples, well, some say this and some say that. You know, and, and he, he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And he says, Thou art, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's good, Peter. You know, don't get a big head about it because the spirit of God had to show you that. You're not that smart. Okay? <laughs> but we'll give you some points. Uh, he, he says, you know, you're Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, I finally got to Bashan and specifically to this location last year. It's really hard to miss the rock. It's dominated by a big rock, a cliff. And inside is the Grotto of Pan. In Jesus' day, it was also a temple of Zeus, which is a real slap in the face to the true God because Zeus was conceived as the most high. 
uh, in, in pagan religion. But a lot of people argue about this, okay? They say, well, you know, the way we should interpret this is Jesus is saying, you know, Peter, Peter, and upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church, and Petros, Peter, sounds like Petra rock, so Jesus is making a pun, and Peter's the first pope, so we should all be Catholic. <laughs> and the Protestants say, no, 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 no. Now, the, the rock is, is Christ himself, and, and the rock was God in the Old Testament, because that's what 1 Corinthians 10 says, the rock was, was Jesus, the rock was God, and so we're gonna take that and import it into the Gospels, and none of us should be Catholic. We should all be Protestant. Okay, I, what I'm suggesting, and I'm, again, I'm not alone, I didn't come up with this view, this is a, a fairly common view, that the rock they're talking about is where they're standing. Okay, because it was known as the gates of hell. It's the place where the Lord of the dead was worshiped, and you know, you got these locations in the region that you go visit the Lord of the dead, you know. It, it's this place. So I don't think the Protestants or the Catholics are correct on this. I think Jesus is saying, you all know what this place is. Upon this, this rock, right here, I'm gonna build my church. This is where it begins, and the gates of hell a lot of our translations have, this is ESV, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now you'll notice, at least here, you see the word against has a little arrow and it doesn't have any English words under it. That's because the word against in English is not represented by a Greek word in the original text. It's supplied by the translator to help it make sense. See, the gates of hell will not prevail against it sounds like the church is taking a beating and the church is gonna survive while the gates of hell beat against it. It'll be okay because it's the church. No, actually you should translate it without that preposition. And then you'd come up with something like, the gates of hell will not withstand it. See, that reverses the image. Now it's not the church taking the beating it's the church administering the beating, okay? So, I mean, what you have Jesus saying here is, is in effect, you all know what this place is, I'm going to turn Satan's domain into his tomb, okay? We are going to reverse what's going on here. And, and the real kicker is, well, we'll get to, to, that, to that part. Well, let's just go. I'll get to the kicker in a moment. <laughs> right after this incident, it says, after six days, I mean, they're, they're there at Caesarea Philippi, six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. Again, if you're there, you just look around and like, where's a high mountain here? I mean, we got this big rock here and it's a cliff, but it's not a mountain, it's a cliff. Oh, there's one right over there. How could we miss it? It's Mount Hermon. What happened at Mount Hermon? Again, if you're reading Second Temple Jewish material about the Genesis 6 story, Mount Hermon is where the watchers descend and covenant together with themselves to corrupt humanity. 
So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into Mount Hermon, and what happens there? It's the transfiguration. So like, you know, he, Jesus goes there, and he manifests who he really is. He exposes himself, you know, in his glory, as if to say what? I'm here. Do something about it. Okay, my view is that when Jesus does this at Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon, he is picking a fight. This is well into his ministry, and the reason I say that is what happens after. This is just some stuff about Hermon. The, the, uh, the Gospels actually don't identify the mountain. The church tradition says it's Mount Tabor. You know why? Because Constantine's mom said it was. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Constantine's mom was a serious believer and she fancied herself as like an, an archaeologist. And so she went around to places in the Holy Land and said, this is, what this, this is where this happened, this is where that happened, this is this place. And people are like, hey, you're the emperor's mom, we're not going to disagree. You know, and it just becomes church tradition. But the, the, the Gospels never identify it. And if you're in the region, there's only one mountain candidate there, and that's Hermon, but oh well. You know, and again, it's not just me. Lots of people take this view I'm giving to you. But it's really interesting that after these two events, you read this in Mark. After he goes to Caesarea Philippi, and he pokes Satan in the eye, then he goes to Mount Hermon and digs, you know, that whole bunch, okay? It says this, he began to teach them, he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He's picking a fight. It's time to get the show on the road. Now, Peter freaks out, if you remember the passage. This is the passage where pre Peter says, no way. You know, like, this isn't going to happen to you. And then Jesus has to say, look, get behind me, Satan. And the, and the whole point is, if you oppose this, you're on his side. You're an adversary. Don't put yourself in an adversarial position to what I have to do, what I'm going to do. This is why I'm here. But he begins to teach them that he has to die. So what happens? They leave this area, they go to Jerusalem, and that's when you have Palm Sunday, and a week later, he's dead. Mission accomplished. It's a provocation. Jesus goes to these places and provokes a response. And you know, you know the gospel stories about Satan entering into Judas, and you, you know all you know, the rest of that. But he does these things to provoke and set the stage for what must happen. He must die. Why does he have to die? To defeat death, you have to have a resurrection. You can't have a resurrection unless you die. It's as plain as day. But they don't, it doesn't register with them. And again, I don't want to poke fun at the disciples because I don't think they were, they were dumb. The, the real issue is, and I, I discussed this in Unseen Realm at, at length. Here's the passage in Paul I alluded to earlier. 
Among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Oh yeah, they are. Paul has read Psalm 82. You're going to die like men. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The disciples didn't understand it either. Do you realize, this little, little bunny trail here, do you realize there isn't a single passage that has, in the Old Testament, that prophesies a Messiah who will be God incarnate, who will die a sacrificial death and rise from the dead. Now, all those individual items are somewhere in the Old Testament, and most of them kind of cryptically. The point is that the plan is scattered throughout the Old Testament. The pieces are not put together. We only have the pieces put together because the New Testament is written in hindsight. Okay, in the unseen realm, I talk about this is, well, I refer to this as the messianic mosaic. It, it's like a puzzle. It's like you have to put a, put a puzzle together without the box lid. Okay? The pieces are just fragmented. It's only afterwards that the picture becomes clear. I mean, I love Luke 24. This is after the resurrection. And they have the risen Christ, the disciples assembled there, the risen Christ is standing in front of them, and they don't get it. The, the, Luke actually says that Jesus had to open their minds so that they could understand. And again, it's not that they're dumb. It's that they didn't know all the pieces or how the pieces went together. They only know this in hindsight. You know, Jesus tells them the, the Spirit's going to guide you into all this. You know, the Spirit's going to help you out. And he does. You know, and, and, you know, that, that's why when, when, they, you know, when the Gospels get written and you know, the, the disciples are out there doing their thing in the book of Acts, they come to understand how everything fit together. And the, and the text will say, and then they remembered what Jesus said about this or that passage. It's like, oh. You know, another piece goes right where it belongs. They're, they're assembling it as they go and as they, they go about their ministries. They don't know it now. Supernatural evil doesn't know it. Had they known it, they never would have done it, is Paul's point. You know, so they are duped. They are led by the nose and duped by Jesus and by the Father, to do precisely the thing that was the beginning of the end for them, because there's no going back. The kingdom has been planted, and now it will grow. Jesus says, you know, I, I have to ascend to the Father. The ascension is actually just as important as the resurrection. Why? Because unless I ascend, the Spirit will not come. And this is why, I mean, we could go into all sorts of stuff here, but just as Jesus is identified with the Father, you know, he, he is God, but he's not the Father and all that stuff, so the Spirit gets talked about in the New Testament as, he, as if he's Jesus, but still distinct. You'll have phrases like Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ interchanged in the same verse. 
Twice Paul says, refers to Jesus as the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's not denying Trinitarianism, he's just identifying the two and elsewhere he'll separate them. This is how, again, we talk about Jesus in relation to the Father. The same thing happens with the Spirit in relation to Jesus. How else can Jesus say, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? Or where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. You know, you, you have a physical resurrection, and yet there's, in some sense, there's this unity in some way of Jesus and the Spirit. But the Spirit will not come until Jesus ascends. He ascends to be at the right hand of the Father to, if you've got a kingdom, you've got a rule, you've got to be a ruler. And the Spirit, you know, again, we'll get into some of this. The Spirit's coming is pretty important, again, for depravity. Let's look at Acts briefly. You have restoring the one family of God and reclaiming the nations. Okay, this is the story of Pentecost. Again, how many times, how many sermons have you heard on the story of Pentecost? You know, both because it's important and because it's important, you hear it a lot, it's familiar except for what you're missing. It's like most of the Bible, really. When the day of Pentecost arrived, again, and it's not because we're, we're dumb and they were smart, it's because we don't have the world, we, we, we don't have the eyes that they had to, to catch certain things. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire, you know, settle on them. Now I wanna just, I have the, the, the column here. I have the word divided clicked on and the column, this is the Greek term diamerizo, okay? To be divided, whoop-de-doo, okay? Well, if we search for that term in the Septuagint, the Septuagint was the Bible of the early church and the New Testament writers. Three quarters of the time they quote the Old Testament, they use the Greek translation of the Old Testament to make their point. Sometimes they quote from the Hebrew and then they do the translation on the fly, but other times they quote from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Because, you know, the world speaks Greek. If we search for diamerizo in the Septuagint, it doesn't show up that many times, 19, but one of them, lo and behold, is Deuteronomy 32, wow. where the nations are divided. You say, ah, that might be a coincidence. Okay, keep reading. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. If we click on bewildered, we look at the Greek term there, it's sunkeo. If we search for that in the Septuagint, guess where that shows up? Genesis 11, which is the story of the Tower of Babel. We've got two terms in the book of Acts, which is about people being enabled to speak in other languages because the nations have other languages, not just one that hook us back into the division of the nations at Babel. I would suggest to you that Luke wants us to think of the reversing of the nations here. He wants us to think of Babel because now all of a sudden the language issue isn't gonna matter. 
God is going to supernaturally, you know, have people speak in these other languages. Why? What is God doing at Pentecost? Well, here, here's a map. I know you can't really see it that well. But if you, you know, you could look later in your, in your Bible in the back. This is a map with all of the place names from Acts chapter 2. Again, this is just Acts 2. This is Pentecost. The list, if you read the list in Acts 2, proceeds from east, and the right-hand side here, east to west. It moves in a westerly direction. It starts with the easternmost geographical points and starts moving toward the sea. And then when you hit the sea, it divides up and covers the northern Mediterranean and the southern Mediterranean, all the way through Cyrenica in Africa, which is almost to Italy you know, or Rome, but we get Italy in the list as well. You say, well, is that supposed to mean something? Yeah, it is. A number of those names, a number of those names are plucked out of the table of nations in Genesis 10. Others get a new name because we're going from Semitic language to Greek. Okay. The point is that the people in Jerusalem, they're Jews. They're scattered all over the known world. They're scattered among the nations, the 70 nations known to the biblical writers. They're Jews. How'd they get there? Exile. They were scattered to the wind because of their idolatry. They were put into the nations that God disinherited and divorced himself from. Why would God do that? because God plays the long game. God knows that at some point, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to die, he's going to rise again. The event of Pentecost is going to occur where Jews from all of these nations are going to show up in Jerusalem and they're gonna see something pretty spectacular. They're going to see people of their own kin group, speaking in the other languages from the regions they're from, and they're gonna be telling them the story of this guy from Nazareth who said he was the Messiah and he was crucified by the Romans and he rose on the third day. And they're gonna believe. 3,000 of them believe. And you know what they do after they believe? They go home. They're like little cell groups planted among the nations. This is why when Paul and other people get to some of these places, there's already believers. Wow. It's like a dandelion. You know, God essentially blows the dandelion and the seed of the kingdom scatters all over the Mediterranean to the nations. The messaging is pretty clear. God is now about the business of reclaiming the nations for himself. If you read through the rest of the book of Acts, again, it's not a coincidence. Remember Acts chapter one, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Samaria, we, we have a, an episode in Acts chapter eight about Samaria. Why is Samaria interesting? Samaria was the Northern kingdom. It was apostate after the kingdom divided. 
And when the northern kingdom was conquered, the Assyrians in this case, came in, they uprooted the populations and deported them to other parts of their empire. And then they took people from other parts of the empire and imported them back into Samaria. And those people would get married and have babies and you have half-breed Jews, the Samaritans. And the Jews have nothing to do with them because they're not pure. But God is interested in them. The gospel goes to Samaria. And right after the Samaritan episode, this is Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, all the way in the south. All the way down to the south, you know, left side of the Dead Sea. There's somebody even from there. Now, this is a little more interesting because we're not told in the Old Testament why Ethiopia would be significant but we are told in the intertestamental period. There was a long tradition and archeological evidence, abundant evidence and textual evidence as well, that a group of Jews left Judah during the time of Manasseh and possibly earlier to escape the idolatry there and they moved down the Nile and they built a colony at Elephantine. And there were other Jews that settled a little west, again, in these African regions. The gospel needs to go to them too. You see a pattern already. The gospel is being taken to the Jew first and also then to the barbarian. That actually started with the barbarian, the Greek, because of Acts 2, but while that was, again, theological messaging, the book of Acts proceeds in a more orderly fashion. It wants the Jewish reader to know, well, you know, yeah, this is your Messiah too, so let's just do it, do it geographically. We hit Samaria, check that off the list. We've got Ethiopia, check that off the list because there's a Jewish presence there. Philip, after he witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, just read it, the spirit plucks him out of the chariot and deposits him in Azotus. What's Azotus? Azotus is one of the Philistine cities. It is in a region that was not under the dominion of the kingdom of Solomon at its height. The kingdom of Solomon, the kingdom of David missed that one. But the writer of Acts, Luke wants you to know that that belongs to God. It's actually covenant territory in the original territorial promises. Every place that matters to the Jewish promises to Abraham gets picked up in either Acts 2 or the rest of the book of Acts. Damascus, Paul's headed, you know, this is where Paul has his conversion. Why is Damascus mentioned in the book of Acts? Remember back to the story of Abraham when Lot gets kidnapped and Abraham has to proceed, you know, to rescue him. He pursues, and the Rephaim are in this list, in Genesis 14. <laughs> he, he pursues this band that, that captured Lot with 318 men. He rescues Lot, and where do they find Lot? Where do they catch up to them and rescue Lot? Damascus. Do you remember God had said, every place that your eye can see and the, and the place that on your, your feet tread on is going to be your land. God didn't forget that. 
Again, that the place names are here for a reason. To the Jewish reader, Luke wants to communicate the gospel was taken to every place that Jews are. And that's important because the, 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 the Jewish nation needs to be brought back together, all 12 tribes, not just two. They're still in exile, even in the New Testament period. Only two of them ever came back. But God has to heal this rift, and then he's going to use them. He's going to plant them all over the, the, the known world. They're going to go back home. You know, wherever they're at, they're going to get witnessed to. They're going to believe. They're going to be there because this is now a beachhead for the kingdom of God in the Gentile world. The gospel is seeded in all these places. And you go through the book of Acts, it's to the Jew first, also Greek. This is, this is Paul's pattern as well. And it's conveyed visually. I mean, we, we could go through, you know, the last Gentile or the last Jew to be converted is the one in Damascus before you get to Cornelius. Cornelius is, again, a God-fearing Gentile. It's a transition point in the book of Acts. All the Jewish stuff has been taken care of. But now we have to get the gospel because he, the, Jesus is the Messiah of the nations, not just Israel. And so we get the ministry of Paul. And Paul, you know, we, we know what Paul does, but one of the cool things about Paul is he has this obsession with Spain. Okay? Romans 15, 20. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But now... Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, I mean, I've, I've you know, been everywhere I needed to go. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, he, he wants, to, I mean, he's on a ship, he's in chains, okay? And he's either writing part of Romans there, or he writes it once he gets into Rome and he hasn't seen them yet because he's in jail. You know, we don't know the exact circumstance, you know, when Romans was written, but he has not seen the believers at Rome yet, so he's writing them, I can't wait to see you guys. You know, Romans 1, I want to impart unto you some spiritual gift, and we got big plans, and it's like, dude, you're in chains. Like, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? And he actually says to them, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Paul, you ain't going anywhere. You know, you're, you're manacled to the ship here. Paul is convinced and he really earnestly wants to go to Spain. And I like, I like to say, what, what does he like, the food? I mean, what, what's, what's the thing about Spain? Why? Who, who would care? Why does he have Spain on the brain? It's because he knows Genesis 10. Uh, again, here's our map of Genesis 10, the disinherited nations. Spain, if you know your geography, is right there. And it's Tarshish. You say, well, who cares? Well, let's go back a little bit. The book of Acts covers all of the geographical nations, the geographical regions disinherited by God at Babel. To this line, this is a little bit past Italy, there's only one nation in the entire table of nations that is not covered. It's Tarshish. It's Spain. Paul knows this. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And again, I can't prove it, but I believe that Paul believed he would not die until he reached Spain. That's the outlier. I have been to every place that is under dominion of these other gods that was disinherited at Babel except for one. My mission is not over 
until I get to the last one. So there you have it. I mean, he, why else would he care? Why else would he care about Spain? Because it's Tarshish. He, you know, he quotes Isaiah 66 as well, which talks about the kingdom, including Tarshish and all this stuff. He knows what he's doing. Here's another thing about Paul. Paul does refer to demons occasionally. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 and 22, he actually quotes Deuteronomy 32, 17 there about avoiding fellowship with demons. But most of Paul's vocabulary are these words, and you're familiar with them if you've read the New Testament. Rulers, principalities, powers, thrones, authorities, you know, all this kind of stuff. What do they all have in common? They are terms used both in the New Testament and outside the New Testament for geographical rulership. In Paul's world, he's not just dealing with demons. Demons are low level. The big players are the ones that control the nations, to whom authority was given as a punishment and who became corrupt. This is the, you know, those other guys, they're, they're the spirits in prison. We don't really need to worry about them until maybe the day of the Lord, okay? Okay, but the ones we really need to worry about now are the ones who control and have dominion geographically. His vocabulary reflects his worldview. It reflects his theology. Epistles and Revelation. Believer's destiny, and this will be where we end. A couple slides here. I've already mentioned, again, the, the unusual feature that the language of God's supernatural family, sons of God, holy ones, in the Old Testament, overwhelmingly refer to, again, the supernatural kids that God has. In the New Testament, the words holy ones and sons of God, children of God, never refer to the supernatural beings. They refer to human believers. The language shifts. Again, it's not a coincidence. Believers are the sons and daughters of God. The kingdom is the beginning of this, Eden, this Edenic vision restored. Well, let's just give you a few examples. John 1.12. But as many as believed on him or in him, to them gave he the authority to become the sons of God. It's John 1.12. 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. And that's what we are. Galatians 3.26. If you are Christ's, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Now, that's a dramatic statement because who else is Abraham's seed? That would be Jesus. Okay, he is the seed. Romans 8, 14. The creation groans and travails, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. It's waiting for the new Eden. Who populates the new Eden? The sons of God. Who are the sons of God? That would be us. Earlier in Romans 8, he refers to anyone who has the spirit is a child of God. 
children of God, sons of God. Hebrews 2, I think, is the best passage for this. You know, it, it's a great New Testament divine counsel passage. Um, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he, Jesus, again in the context, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, to my siblings, a better way to translate it, brothers and sisters, siblings. I will tell of your name to my siblings in the midst of the congregation. What congregation? It's the counsel of God. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Do you realize that when you pass on, or again, when the, either the latter of the Lord comes, you will be introduced in the divine council to God, and God will be introduced to you by Jesus. That's the picture. That's Hebrews 2. Again, the language is intentional. Revelation 2, I think, is, is great. Nevertheless, hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, and who keeps my words until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. Okay, this is Jesus speaking about you. The one who overcomes, I will give him authority over the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron rod. Jesus is quoting a messianic passage, not about himself, but about you. That's just crazy. Like Jesus, don't you know proper hermeneutics? Like, you know, this is about you. And he said, no, yeah, I get that, but it's about you too. Why? Because we're siblings. He will shepherd them with an with an iron rod, he will break them in pieces like jars made of clay. As I also have received from my father, I will give him the morning star. It's an interesting phrase. Morning star language in Revelation 2.28 is messianic. It refers to a divine being who would come from Judah. And we know this from Numbers 24.17. A star will go out from, Ju from Jacob and a scepter will rise from Israel. Later in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses the same language of himself. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus grants his authority to you. Okay, you rule the nations with him. As if that's not enough, we got Revelation 3. Okay, this is the, you know, we've all seen the picture of Jesus knocking at the door. And that's all we remember in the passage. Okay. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, indeed I will come into him and dine with him. There you go. There you go with the cosmic meal. I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also have conquered and have sat down with my father on his throne. 
okay, if we're going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, if we're going to do, you know, who rules the nations now? The fallen sons of God. Now, Paul, as I said earlier, connects the resurrection of Jesus with the nullification of their power. He does this in five or six passages, that the resurrection somehow results in the defeat of the rulers, the authorities, the principalities of power, so on and so forth. What that means is, I, mean, I, I wish, well, it, it, the, audio, the audio is terrible, but I got invited to a pagan podcast a couple of years ago. You're, you're going to love this. I get an email from a guy who signed the email as Hercules. <laughs> you know, when you get an email from Hercules, <laughs> there's a lot of things that go through your mind. <laughs> so so his, his show was called The Voice of Olympus. And in the, in the email, he says, look, he goes, you know, I know you're a Christian, I'm a pagan. He goes, but I just read your little book, Supernatural, and I loved it. Will you come on my show? And so I'm like, well, this will be interesting, why not? <laughs> so I said, yeah, and, and again, I, I've, I've actually been on the show twice now, but, and I recommend listening to it. <laughs> I, rec I know why you're laughing, and I'll tell them that too, okay? Um, so, <laughs> you know, I go on this show, and he's excited, and, and he tells me, he's like, I just can't have this conversation with like anybody else. I, I, it's hard for me to find people to, to talk about this sort of stuff with. And I'm thinking, yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> you know? So, but it, he's he's really really nice guy. We just had a good time. But for the first like ten minutes of the show, he's reading me Greco-Roman pagan religious texts with the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, I'm really learning something here. I mean, I knew of a few references in, you know, Plato, but like this guy, this guy knows them. And he goes, he goes, this is why I was so excited. The Bible has the same worldview as this other stuff. And he says, I have one question. So it's a really good interview. I got one question. Because <laughs> I got one question. If Yahweh, the most high in the Bible, set this whole thing up, where he divorced the nations and he assigned other gods to them and then those people are supposed to, you know, not be related to Yahweh but, but these other gods and this is the situation that develops. What does he want? And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because it, it was a good opportunity because this is what, I felt like Paul for a day, for at least a couple hours. Because Paul goes into a pagan city and he knows that they share the worldview. So he can go into to, you know, pagan turf and he says, look, look, fellas, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, look, we worship the gods we worship and you Jews do something else because this is the way the gods want it. The nations are allotted to the gods. And that means, you know, if, if we like forsake our gods, we're in big trouble because they're going to be angry at us because they're the ones that set this thing up. And so Paul would say, well, I mean, that, that's pretty good. You know, we have, we have the same worldview, but, but uh, there's a little twist on it that you're missing. The Most High, yes, you're correct, set up this system. This is why in the, in the biblical story, everybody knows the true God at one point, and then, you know, get all these pantheons and stuff. 
So you're right, the Most High sentenced, judged the nations and allotted these other gods to them. He didn't want them to be worshiped, but that's what happened. We got Psalm 82, we know that that's what happened. And, and yeah, that, that's the biblical worldview and the biblical story. But the neat thing, and here's what you're missing, the neat thing is that the same Most High became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And now the same Most High is coming to you. The same one that gave these gods their authority in the first place has now taken it back. Their authority is nullified. You don't need to be afraid of these other gods when I tell you that the Most High wants you back in the family. So I, you know, I actually gave this answer to this guy on the show. And, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, at least a seed was planted. He had me back, so he wasn't real mad. But the funny thing was, and I think this is why Stovall's laughing, during the commercial breaks of this show, there's this deep, dark, sinister voice that comes on in between your, your segments and says, this is the Pagan Podcast Network. All pagan, all the time. And I thought, not today. <laughs> uh, so so it, it, was, it was fun. But, but, I mean, think about the worldview. This is why Paul says, look, when Christ rose from the dead, their dominion ended. They have no legitimate authority over the people they enslave. Now, they're not going away because they want their turf. They want to resist, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I mean, this, this, is, this is not just the Pauline message, it's the message of the gospel. So you don't have to feel like you're doing something wrong, like, like you're, you're violating the Most High's will because he's the one that, that you know, he's the origi originator of all this because of what happened at Babel. Paul says, he not only wants you back, he insists on it. They do not have legitimate authority anymore. Just like Satan has no legitimate claim over the soul of any member of the kingdom of God. This, you know, Christ ascends, the spirit comes, and that helps us combat depravity. I mean, the Messiah is supposed to address all of these problems we talked about in the last hour. And you know, this is part of our destiny. So the last slide here, I said we would come back to this, this graphic. You know, if we're here and we have, you know, back here, we have legitimate authority. This is our destiny, to have authority over the nations in the new Eden. Okay, this is the book of Revelation, the end of days, the transition to the age to come. We will, in fact, displace and replace the sons of God who are in rebellion. This is why we're introduced in the council in Hebrews 2, because believers are the reconstituted family and council of God. That's what we are. And Paul, as I alluded to a little earlier, his language becomes decipherable. When you look at the, at the, the structure, how they conceive the council, the sons of God are, is the elite tier in the middle. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you people know Apparently they didn't. <laughs> that the holy ones will judge the world. 
Most of your translations are going to have saints. I really hate that translation, by the way. Holy ones. It's supposed to take your mind back to the supernatural realm, to the divine council, composed of holy ones. And Paul says, don't you know that the holy ones will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, that would mean you're the holy ones. Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? We will judge the middle tier in that we will replace it. And we outrank the bottom tier. We are the ones who share the throne. We are the ones who will rule the nations with the rod of iron. Get all these descriptions. In the end, we have a global Eden with humanity blended into the family of God. You got the two families brought together. Humanity is fit for sacred space. Sacred space covers the entire globe. And, and the end point is God gets his way. That's why it ends with, with a global Eden. God gets what he originally wanted. But we've got this whole you know, epic arc of the history of salvation going on between Eden and this other Eden over here. And there are just things, again, we're wrapping up here, Stovall, there are just things that, again, will, you'll lose the meaning of certain things if you don't do what you can to, you know, try to pick up the breadcrumbs, you know, of, of what's going on. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about spiritual warfare, for instance, you know, spiritual warfare is about the conflict between two kingdoms. We are never told, you know, I, I should, I think I might have included this. Oh, yeah, I did. Let me go to one, this one slide right here. We are, we are told to, uh, we're never told to go into certain areas and cities and regions and just yell at demons. We're not told to do that. You know, demons, again, are low-level players. They, in, they inflict harm upon individual persons. But intelligent evil that has geographical dominion and is concerned with empires, like in Daniel, it has better things to do than turn people into sock puppets made of flesh. It's got bigger, bigger fish to fry. It is about controlling people through, you know, intelligent means. How would you control a population in an empire? you manipulate the humans that are in charge. I mean, in that case, they're basically willing idolaters, so it's not really that difficult. But the same thing happens now. Intelligent evil wants to move herds. It wants to control hearts and minds. It's about how you think. It's about big things like, who am I? What's my mission? Idolatry, in other words, being distracted from the worship, from loyalty to the true God, to anything else. It's about self-destruction through the things we do or, the, or that we don't do. Intelligent evil knows what buttons to push. And it doesn't have, you don't have to have a demon behind every, every rock. You don't have to have, oh, a demon made me do this. No, we can destroy ourselves just fine by ourselves. But to move herds of people in one direction or the other, and toward idolatry and away from the truth, that takes an intelligent plan. 
And supernatural beings can do this. Again, if I were a supernatural evil being, I know what I would do. I would get to leaders in government and in media. Because if I get a handful of those people dedicated to chaos, that's going to be real effective. I'm not going to work hard, I'm going to work smart. Now, what are we told to do? We are tasked not with, you know, going out and doing, you know, strange rituals and yelling at demons and all this kind of stuff. What are, what are they scared of? I'll tell you what they're scared of. They're scared of the kingdom of God. Because in first, in Romans 11, Paul specifically talk, he's talking about, he's talking about the return of the Messiah. He's talking about the revival of Israel. Okay. And he specifically says, and he says it in Corinthians as well, that essentially the Lord is not going to come back until the fullness of the Gentiles has been brought in. Because then that will launch, initiate the revival of Israel so that all Israel will be saved. Again, that's, it's a debate, debated thing as to what the phrase means, but what I don't want you to lose sight of is the fullness of the Gentiles is key to the day of the Lord and the return of the Lord. Fullness of the Gentiles is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So what we are tasked with is what Jesus actually told us to do before he ascended. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, that's Matthew 28, 19, but you know what the verse earlier says to it? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. It's not just for the Jew, it's for all the nations. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation. It's the fullness of the Gentiles idea. And I was talking to Stovall last night, I think people, when you talk about this, they get paralyzed by the, by the, the overwhelming feel of the task. I've left this on, on the board for a reason. The problem with the fulfillment of the Great Commission, it's not getting done for a number of reasons, but one of them is not math. This is from a Pew survey recently. It, it actually used census data. As of 2014, there were 25.4% of the US population that, that called themselves evangelicals. Evangelicals are supposed to know what the gospel is. Now, you can say, well, a lot of evangelicals really don't. Okay, I'll grant you that. Let's cut it in half. Instead of 80 million, you know, that percentage calculates out to 81 million, let's go with 40. The world population at present rate is estimated right now, 2018 anyway, 7.6 billion. It's supposed to be near 10 billion by 2050. If 40 million people, again, half the evangelical population, evangelizes one person each in 2019. By this time next year, we'll have 80. And then in 2020, we'll have 160. And then we have 320, 640. Now, in, in only four years, we're up over a billion. By 2026 or 2027, 23 years early, we cover every last human being on the planet. Look, the, the problem is not math. 
But it's very easy to get overwhelmed with the thought of the task. It's not math. So why isn't it getting done? It's not, it's, it's not getting done because of other issues. We're, frag, we don't, we're fragmented in the church. How are we supposed to make, how are we supposed to illustrate life as God intended it to be in Eden, where everything is unity, there's wholeness? Again, a, a little slice of what it must be like to live in God's house, in his presence. There's justice, there's wholeness, there's loyalty to the true God, you know, through the gospel. You know, if, if, you've, if you listen to me for any amount of time, the gospel is about believing loyalty. Everything we covered today frames what it means to be a believer. I like to use Naaman. I mean, I, I rarely preach sermons, but I, 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 my, my first sermon since 2004, I think, was like last year. And I did the Naaman passage, the Naaman the leper, because Naaman and the widow of Zarephath are used by Jesus as two examples of faith. Like, why didn't he pick Abraham? Or like, you know, somebody famous? I mean, who are these? They're pagans. They're both pagans. Naaman and the widow of Zarephath is from Sidon, near Tyre or Sidon. She, she's, she's Phoenician, okay? Why is he picking these people? Because they both do things that demonstrate they will worship no God other than Yahweh. You know, Naaman says, now I know that Yahweh is the God of all gods and I will worship no other. Okay, it's belief that this is the true God, he is who he says he is, and that for some reason that I don't quite understand, he loves me, he made a covenant with Israel, I'm allowed to join that if I throw my loyalty over to him and will worship no other. Hey, I got news for you, Naaman's not keeping the Torah. Naaman goes back to Syria. There is no Torah, he's never gonna you know, like do a festival, he's never gonna do Jewish stuff but he has the one thing that he needs. He knows the one thing that is critical and crucial. And he assigns his loyalty to the true God. And that's, that's his theology. End of story. And again, the widow of Zarephath does the same thing in, in different actions that she does. Again, what, what's the point? Well, the point is, Believing loyalty is the issue. Now we're asked to believe the gospel. The gospel is that this same God, Yahweh, the Most High, became a man, died on a cross, and rose again for the sins of the world. This is the only means of salvation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no one comes to the Father except by me. That's what you need to believe. It has nothing to do with your performance. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us while we were cleaning up our act, while we were learning theology, you know, while we were, you know, fill in the blank. Before we had a single thought about, you know, caring about what God thought at all, while we were yet sinners, while we, Paul says, while we were enemies, okay, Christ died for us. So this, I mean, this is the task, and we're supposed to illustrate the message of salvation 
we become part of God's family, we're supposed to live in a certain way so that the people outside will want to be part of the community. But if we have our own fragmentation, you know, our own issues, if we can't take care of them here, how are we gonna restore Jesus' reputation outside? I mean, unfortunately, Jesus has a bad reputation in our culture. And you could say that that's, that's legitimate or illegitimate, you know, it's a caricature, but that's what people are thinking. And they think that way because either something a Christian did to them or again made up nonsense about Christians. Okay, the, the issue isn't solving that. You can solve actually both sides of that by being God's imager. You follow Christ, you, you imitate him, you are the image of Jesus. You conform to him and that's the way we image God. You know, again, all of these things sort of weave together. And again, when we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about, I'm getting, I'm rambling on here, I will wrap it up. But you know, when, when we talk about this kind of stuff, my concern is that we are, we are defeated by math, and we don't need to be, and we're distracted. You know, we could, we're, we're worldly as well. And what I mean by that is, we're more oriented by things of this life than of the next. That's a big problem. 